Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I meet cute to discuss our current comic book obsessions, such as The Dark Side War, Even Cowgirls Get the Plants, Bad Machinery, Chris Claremont on Iron Fist, Steve Englehart now Milgram on Captain Marvel, Journey to Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Back to the Future Day, J.J. Abrams' Keeper of Mysteries, and much, much more. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan, hello! How the devil are you? I, I am the devil, yes. I mean, no, wait, what'd you ask? No, no, that was right. I was actually asking you you're the devil. Oh, yeah. Uh, are you are you son of Satan? Are you Mephisto? <laughs> you know, the great thing about Marvel was they just weren't con- content with having one devil for some reason. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's great. They were like, what if we had seven? Yeah, that, that's not going to confuse anyone. So let's get Asmodeus and uh, Mephisto, and then like we'll have a Bazal, and then... Yeah, and then we got to have a Satan in there, you know. It was just... Did they actually have a Satan? I know they have a son of Satan, obviously, but I always thought that was like a code name. Like, is his dad actually Satan Satan? <gasps> oh my god, Graham, do you really... You're just you're just trying to make my day, right, by asking a question like that. I, I, I genuinely don't know, but this is really funny, because I had an ulterior motive for this, this episode that I think I've just accidentally stepped on. <laughs> Uh, I was going to ask, because the other day, out of nowhere, uh-huh. it struck me, I have no idea, like, what your favorite comic is, or what your favorite comic character is. Oh, really? I, you know, Like, how long have we been doing this? How long have I known? <laughs> and if someone said, what is Jeff's favorite comic? I'd probably go, like, it's probably a Kirby. <laughs> Andy, but, I, you know, I couldn't say for sure. Right. And I, I, I have no idea who your favorite comic character is. So, first of all, that question's on the table, but quickly respond to my Satan question. Okay, the 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 I'll give you a two part quick question, a quick answer, which is a yes. Uh, Damon Hellstrom was the son of Satan, and his sister Satana um, were both. Both of them had a mother who, um, you know, the husband was not the man that he thought he she thought he was. Satan, yes, but then part B, eh, leave it to James Dematius to kind of muddy the waters a little bit because <laughs> Jeff, this week I've been reading a lot of James Dematius's Captain America run. Oh, really? So it's hilarious to me that you just said that. That is great <laughs> and wonderfully fitting. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> So, yeah, so Dematius has in his Defenders, I want to say it's an issue 100, I think, although maybe it's a little later than that. But let's let's just say it's it's issue 100 where there's the the Defenders go down to hell to rescue Patsy Walker and Damon Hellstrom from Satan. And in the course of it, um I think Damon ends up like turning himself into all devil, all demon in order to save his friends. And I think Patsy Walker's his wife at that point. And, um, and at that point, Satan sort of reveals himself to be kind of a bizarre, like he, like I have many faces and many names. And of course, being James Dematius, he's like, so, 
I'm Satan, I'm Mephisto, I'm Asmodeus, but I'm also God. So I'm pleased. And you're just like, wait, what, what did you just say, James Demetrius? What? Oh my God. See, I thought because you were saying James Demetrius, it was going to be like, but I'm also anti-Buddha. Yeah. Well, see, that's, yeah. I Which mean, he might have jammed in an anti-Buddha. 1980s, thing. you know, yeah. that, that, that seems right up his alley. It, it really does. It really does. So he's, you know, he's trying to swing for those, like, cosmic meaning, cosmically meaningful fences uh, in, in, at the Marvel Universe ballpark. And so it, it really does end with kind of, uh, I'm like, oh, okay, so on the one hand, Satan is entity, but, uh, you know, whereas I, I'm 90% sure if you look, I'd, I'd be curious if the Marvel, the handbook of the Marvel Universe actually has an entry for Satan in it. Or if it just has something I'm like... I'm fairly sure it doesn't. Uh, it may well have like a sort of one for either probably Mephisto and then, yeah. you know, sort know, of jams like, that... Known as... Oh, then yeah. again, if I look up Marvel Wikia, Satan does have an entry. Mm-hmm. But it... <laughs> oh, great. Satan does not have an entry. Satan has a holding page that actually says, beings called Satan. Lucifer, yes. Marduk Kurlos, Satanish... <laughs> Mephisto, Azrael, Loki. That's not Loki Loki either. That's mm-hmm. a different Loki. It's not Thor's Loki. Wow. Crow from the uh, Eternals, because he does make a claim to be Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Satan from the Mangaverse. And then it goes 20th century Satans. Satan, the being who empowered the Black Widow. Satan, ruler of nowhere's underworld. Satan commanded the wizard Balthazar. Satan commanded Madam Satan. Satan forced Captain America to battle the Red Skull in 1949. <laughs> and Master Natus battled Venus in the 1950s, claimed to be Satan. Right, right. That makes sense. Like the late 40s and early 50s, you know, they... they oh, did... they were big on Satan. Yeah, the, let's face it. Let's see. There's so many great pull quotes that we've had here. Like, what what did you say? The 20th century what of Satan? It, says, it actually says 20th century Satans. 20th century Satans is like the best name for like a band ever. It really well, no, is. Well, not anymore. It'd have to be 21st century Satans now, Jeff. No, that just sounds cheesy. 20th, 20th century, century Satans, Satans. But only if they're all dressed in like the Beatles in their Hamburg days. With like, <laughs> pants and the black turtlenecks and they all wear uh masks of famous rock stars who are dead okay i i will give you i will absolutely give you the rock stars of face of Matt rock stars who are dead i was going in that direction anyway but dressed as the fawns uh vinnie barbarino from uh welcome back cotter uh andy warhol and um I don't know, some dude who was big in the 80s, who was kind of cheesy. 1980s David Bowie, Tin Machine David Bowie. Oh, right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like anyone can tell who that is. You know? Like, it's oh, a guy that had like a horrible suit. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's what I'm it's saying. Like, Tin Machine David Bowie is like, uh, David Bowie, like. It is like the weakest sauce David Bowie. It's Absolutely. Like, can, can I have the, the David Bowie with the least amount of Bowie flavor, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go Tin Machine Bowie. Yeah, Tin Machine Bowie is, as I recall, that is notoriously um, pretty weak sauce. It's kind well, of like. He's so bad that uh, when, he, when he then dumped Tin Machine and came back with the song Jump They Say, people were like, return to form, despite the fact that Jump They Say is fucking appalling. Yeah. Well, that's, that, but that was also the era 
Sorry, wait, what, listeners? So, why not? We are a comic podcast, really, and we'll get there eventually. But, um, jump, they say, and what, was that Black Tie, White Noise? Was that the name of that album? I, I think. I, I think uh, maybe was the start of the like two decades where every single time David Bowie released a new album, it would be called a return to form. Oh, totally. Every totally. single album. Yeah, every. It was everyone. wonderful. Yeah. He's not keeled over. This this vaguely, like, do you remember his drum and bass stallions? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, vaguely. Vaguely. And I mean, it's... like, oh, yeah. Earthling. Earthling's a return to form. He's yeah. cutting edge again. It's, it's, all, it's always a return to form. They're like, ah, oh, thank God. Like, Trent Reznor is, like, hooked up with him to help him return to form. And I'm like, mm. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing. The idea is, like, David Bowie was supposed to be a human chameleon. The whole idea of, like, returning to form is kind of like, isn't that, if you think about it, like, yeah. How, how would, how would that happen exactly? But, uh, but I mean, David Bowie's, one of the things that's great about David Bowie is how many atrocious songs he's released, if you think about oh, it. So, if you look at the, the, the weight of the Bowie by catalog. Mm hmm. Truly great things is a really small percentage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. up there with um, Elvis Costello as someone who is considered to be great, mm-hmm. but their their back catalog of, of like kind of shit and <laughs> truly amazing is heavily weighed in the kind of shit category. See, and okay, admittedly, as a Costello fan, I I have to say that I feel that there's at least a sort of deeper plushier. And that was okay, I guess. Songs, you know oh, what I, I mean? Th- I like, think I feel Costello like Costello ironically has a. Uh, I'm trying to think of a way that doesn't sound like I like I'm insulting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a level of competency and quality, mm-hmm. that, a baseline that is is more consistent than Bowie. Right. Yeah, I think so. I, I think so too because it seems to me, if nothing else, Costello could be counted on for some pretty decent. Uh, wordplay in his lyrics, even if his lyrics were variations on, I don't hate women, I just hate you, you know, kind of, uh. <laughs> I believe that's the name of his new autobiography. <laughs> it would be, it would be appropriate. I, I, it would be I'm a, joking. But he does have an autobiography, which is why I was thinking about Casello earlier on today. Uh, you were thinking about Costello? I thought you were yeah, thinking about but, Satan earlier today. Wait, why? Well, I was as well. I was actually thinking about you earlier on today because <laughs> I was thinking about your favorite comic and your fa- your favorite character. Right. So, first of all, do you have a favorite character? Because I quite believe you have a favorite comic. Do you have a favorite character or favorite characters? You know, I, I, <sighs> Jeff. <laughs> it, 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 it's a really good question because I because I feel like there's a certain amount of uh, I, I've been in the game long enough that there's a certain degree of uh, rotation as far as both characters and I think favorite comic books. You know, um, like so, give me some of the ones in the rotation. Okay, well, and this will be a little bit of a, a way that we can also have a, a bit of a comic uh, segue in a way is. Um, as Graham may know, and people who follow my Twitter uh, may suspect, um, there was a recent Marvel buy one, get one sale at uh, Comixology uh, over the last <laughs> weekend. And uh, the, the last time we had that, uh, they had that available. I went through and bought a bunch of stuff, most of which ended up being reviewed over at the Wait What website, like Rich Buckler's Deathlock and... Uh, 
the entire run of Night Nurse, which sounds amazing until, you know, unless you know it's only yeah, four it's issues. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's four issues, so that's not amazing. But then reading it is a whole nother thing, which is just like, wow. Uh, this time I, <laughs> I basically was kind of like, oh, okay, let me look, you know, cause, cause God help me, what I will do is something that I never do otherwise, which is I will go to Comixology, browse a bipolar brochure, open up Marvel and, and scroll through like whatever the 37 pages they have of all their different titles. And then when I see stuff, I'm like, Oh, let me open that up and see what they have here. So, so all of which is to say that if the last two weeks, uh, were any indication, one could come to the conclusion that I am an awfully big fan of Iron Fist, Power Man and Power Man and Iron Fist. Um, well, that's, Good yeah. choice. And also, hilarious, uh, since, cause the last time we did this was two weeks ago and that was a Baxter building, so it's been three weeks since we've done a, uh, wait, what? That's right. Since then, I've reread all the Joe Duffy Paramount and Iron Fist issues. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Man. Well, see, I'm right behind you, cause I've, I've got those suckers all queued up, so to speak. They're so good, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. I, I, t- which I totally believe. I totally believe. I will probably be hitting them well, it depends on, on my timing, in which is to say that one of the things when it came around to us talking about comic books, you were probably going to have to hear me talk about Iron Fist a lot. Because I have read everything, or I should say really more accurately, reread up to Iron Fist issue 8. Um, You're talking the original series? Yes, that is correct. So it starts off with um, Marvel premiere that's right marvel premiere uh 15 through 24 or 25 uh bah, 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 bah. hello 25 and then from there it's uh 15 issues of claremont and burn um then the, well and i should say that that Bur- claremont comes in at issue 23 and burn shows up at issue 25 uh, interestingly enough, I was like, oh, wow, there's like really early work by Pat Broderick in two issues of Iron Fist that I was like, oh, I bet, I bet Graham would be interested in this in just a Jesus God, like Pat Broderick, you know? <laughs> yeah, how long has Pat Broderick had a career? Yeah, because it's much I, earlier. Sounds, than... sounds like a, I, like amazingly bitchy, but I, I mean it, because he also does, didn't he go straight from there to Micronauts for a while? Uh, no, there's. I think there's a big gap here because, like I said, he's he's only in these two issues of Marvel Premiere. Micronauts didn't roll out until I want to say after Iron Fist gets canceled at Iron, you know, in fifteen, which is right around Claremont and Byrne, like literally right when Byrne takes over on on Kenny X Men at one hundred and eight. And I want to say the Micronauts don't pop up until like another. 12 issues at least later? Am I wrong in that? I mean... Uh, no, the Micronaut... Oh, what, okay, what is... What year does Marvel premiere? Yeah, uh, and that that is actually the really good question. I should really let's, go to... Let's find out. Yeah, let's go to, let's go to the wiki or uh, whatever. Da, da, yeah. 25, let's see. Iron First first appears in 74, and then he continues for 10 issues of a... Bi-monthly series. Yeah, it might have been bi-monthly. So bi-monthly, yeah. right? Right. Um, yeah, it's got to be bi-monthly. Uh, so that would be a year and a half. Yeah. So 
he will be finishing his Marvel premiere run around the end of 75. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Micronauts. I want to say it's like 77, but I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe it's, well, it's, it's got to be after Star Wars, and Star Wars is 77. So maybe it's immediately after, so it's like 78 or 79, but 78 sounds about right to me. So, and then it's Michael Golden, as you know, like Broderick doesn't come in for a while in there, right? 79. So. Micronauts starts in 79. Right. It's golden for a year. Yeah. Is it only just a year? Oh my god, what a year that was. Oh, it's a great year. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, that's not true. It's going for like 12 issues, but again, it's bi-monthly, so it's years. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Uh, right. So, let's see here. Do they t- do they have his blah blah Let's see. Um, yeah, he flew to New York in the early 70s to compete in DC Comics Junior Bullpen Program. Jesus, what's wrong with my program? <laughs> you know, I got to say the episode where Jeff suffers the stroke on air is going to end up being our most collectible episode of Wait What? I can just tell you now. Oh, that's not funny. No, I know that that's, would be that's awful. Not, no, not funny. <laughs> not funny on numerous levels, Jeff. So he drew filler pages and short stories for various hundred page super spectaculars. He worked for the continuity associates as a member of the Krusty Bunkers. 75, after sporadic work with DC and Marvel, he went to Atlas Comics. Uh, and then he was back at Marvel, working on various titles for their black and white line, Curtis Magazines? Huh. This led to runs on Captain Marvel and then on the Micronauts. So, yeah. yeah he like, started Micronauts 80. So, yeah, that really was quite a distance. Yeah, it was a distance. So, seeing him on Iron Book, Iron Book, <laughs> on Iron Fist, oh, that strokes. Place your pets now, ladies and gentlemen. I gotta tell you, I got a good I feeling about this episode. Um, <laughs> There, there's an amazing set of, uh, you know, the very first issue of Iron Fist is Roy Thomas and Gil Kane, and they're more or less doing their tribute to Bill Everett's Amazing Man. You know, they're apparently think, both fans. They, now, am I right in saying they both leave, like, the next issue? The, yeah, they're only on for the issue. Kane, as far as I can tell, continues to go and do covers for the book for a considerable chunk of time. I mean, they're not signed, but they look like where Kane's just doing covers for Marvel books. Well, see, that's it. There is a period where he was the house cover artist, although I think that was earlier. I want to say that was more or less over when before 74 rolls around, but he's still doing a shit ton of them, you know? Uh, and, um, what happens is the very next issue is the premiere of a guy that we've talked about, um, although not as a penciler, Larry Hama. Larry Hama actually draws the next, uh, four issues of Iron Fist. Um, it's kind of amazing to see all these creators who you know is something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've been reading through the, the old Marvel Age, as you know. Right. And there's an entire article about Mark Grunewald penciling Hawkeye. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? Which yeah, is which just, is kind well, of Bob amazing. Bob Budiansky is penciling something as well. Right. Bob Budiansky is penciling Submariner? Wow. Right. So there, there is weird stuff. And, you know, I got to say, Larry Hama's got, you know, one of the things that's great is rereading those four issues where – where he's on, um, you know, he introduces, well, the first issue sets up Iron Fist and Kunlun and the, the August personage and Jade and the four dragons that 
basically sort of more or less filter out. The next issue, Underhammer introduces Lee Kung the Thunderer, who's, you know, the guy who trains Iron Fist and uh, is, is sort of a, a father figure to him once his, his you know, because his father dying is part of Iron yeah, Fist's origin. Yeah. But one of the things that's all kind of awesome about it is is Lee Kung has on a, you know, big medallion in the middle of his chest a um, I Ching hexagram the same way that that Snake Shadow and uh, God no Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow do in GI Joe, and also issue sixteen is where the utterly silent ninja shows up and starts killing people, and that's an ongoing subplot for like four issues. Um, now is is Hammer writing or just drawing? He is drawing. He's drawing. Who's writing? First issue is Len Wein. The next three issues are uh, Doug Mensch. So Doug Mensch. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting seeing Mensch, who again goes on to do amazing stuff with Master of Kung Fu. Um, you know, put put Iron Fist through his paces. It's mm-hmm. it's very much and and what is interesting is is it, it's. It's a continuing story, of course. You know, first issue is Iron Fist's origin, but I don't remember if he's even in New York at that point. But the very next issue, he's in New York. He's hunting for the guy who killed his father, and he's every every five minutes, he's basically getting jumped on by um, by martial arts gangs or like one guy who's got an incredibly dumb name i can't remember what it is but it really is it's like you know thug dude he's the meanest of the thugs who's also a dude <laughs> you know that kind of thing like it really was it was like i have this it's like that old uh simpsons halloween episode it's like i have a pointed stick it's like your stick is no match for my board with a nail in it like it's it's a lot of the <laughs> Oh my god they've got martial arts weapons how is iron fist ever going to win you know and then uh, interestingly enough, which I totally forgot about because I just, I was like, oh yeah, Mensch, Hama, I've got a few of these issues. And then it just rolls right into Claremont. There is actually two issues with Tony Isabella and Arvel Jones in which, and uh, no, I'm sorry, three, three issues with Tony Isabella and Arvel Jones in which they, with like issue 20, they bring in Badrock the Leaper. And this is one of those classic, like Tony Isabella, like, is the fanboy's fanboy. And I mean that Tony Isabella is way. also the 1970s Marvel fill-in king. Oh, he well, dude, there's the, the the scary thing about Marvel Comics back then is they were all jockeying for position. Tony Isabella, if it wasn't Tony Isabella, cuz I haven't even started talking about Oswald, the Steve Englehart right? uh, uh Captain Marvels, but um but like Chris Claremont is like running around trying to find you know, steady work. And in fact, uh, Bill Mantlo on the Skull of the Slayers is like, oh my God, I'm so happy to have a regular gig that's going to be my own book, he says in issue six, you know, and then the book is canceled at issue eight, you know? Well, hang on. So you've just mentioned Skull of the Slayer, which is interesting because we're talking about the fact that, you know, someone creates Iron Fist and they're off the next issue. And yeah. then it just passes through various creators, mm-hmm. which really reminds me of Skull of the Slayer. And, and, it's a major problem for Skull and Slayer that there's no real continuity there in terms of creators. Well, uh, okay. Uh, on the one it, hand, it ironically has more continuity than Iron Fist. We'll see. Exactly. Sticking with it for, for the first four. Exactly. But it, it's funny how I guess that things were, were happening at Marvel at the time. 
mm-hmm. that it really wasn't creator-driven at all. No, it really wasn't. Well, interestingly enough, Skull of Slayer is one of those that arguably sort of is, although whatever was going on behind the scenes, you're right, Marv Wolfman only did three issues of it, but it was a book that sort of he created and he did, like... Marvel Premiere is actually closer in some ways. The Iron Fist is closer in some ways to what I was talking about um, a, a few episodes ago, which is rereading Supervillain Team Up. Supervillain Team Up is written by Roy Thomas, very much with the idea that he doesn't. He all he wants to do is launch the book and pass it on to someone. And there's a lot of books that are hap- coming out of Marvel. Marvel keeps growing and expanding almost faster than they can find the talent, but there's a lot of, like, as far as I can tell, there's a lot of just throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. Um, Which becomes problematic for guys like uh, Gary Friedrich when he's trying to to say, like, oh, I, you know, I created Ghost Rider, and it's like, but you had four people design, you know, it went through four separate hands when it was being, you know, visually designed in-house before the book was, you know, was given to you by Roy Thomas, you know? Mm-hmm. And Friedrich's like, well, sure, but I in- I invented all the, the awesome stuff, like the fact he so- sells his soul to Satan. And it's like, what about Son of Satan that came out like two months earlier and has the exact same concept? He's like, uh, in the very next issue, you've got Son of Satan, like, sitting there t- saying that he's gonna have to, like, you know, stick a fork in Ghost Rider's ass. Did, did I mean, did you invite, invent Son of Satan? And Friedrich's like, I, I'm an old man who would like some money. Please, please give me some money. You know? So, <laughs> so Marvel is, it's a mess there, but there's a lot of stuff where they had been constrained for so long by their distribution agreement, uh, to the number of titles that they had, that when that finally opened up, they kind of were, they kept adding they titles. Yeah, and they kept, I, I honestly think that Roy Thomas was like, okay, I, we gotta, you know, we gotta do, you know, along with Stan, and, you know, they knew the history of the medium. They're like, okay, the superhero fad is gonna be over, so what do we do? We've gotta create monster stuff, but, you know, we've gotta, what else? Well, black exploitation movies are big, martial arts movies, you know, so, th- so these things are being created and handed off. And I think with half an idea toward these, oh, half of these, either half of these books are going to fail or half of our superhero books are going to fail. But the thing that's stunning about the way that Marvel ran is, there were there there weren't that many um there were uh, uh, books that lasted a ridiculously long time you know yeah i thought for a second you were going to say there weren't that many books that failed and i was going to go there were a lot of books that failed Jeff. Well, no, well, no but i think there were far fewer than what they were expecting you know yeah, i there, really I, I, there were a lot were. of concepts that mm-hmm. failed but like no one ever remembers them and who remembers seeker 3000 these days Right. Although Seeker 3000, again, is something that kind of got dropped into one issue of Marvel Premiere or one issue of Marvel Spotlight. I mean, they did things like that. They're like, okay, you know, they have these ideas of let's do a tryout book for the Warriors 3. And then they're like, eh, let's fold it into – it is interesting to me the way that there are those books like Seeker 3000 or – you know, Weird World or, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff that's kind of like testing the waters and then just goes Disappear nowhere. for a while. Yeah. I Although mean, Weird World is back, of course. 
Of course, but not quite in the, oh, hey, here's like two cute, like not hobbits running around and, you know. No, exactly. It's, it's, it's back in the, let's put it through the Jason Aronator. Yeah, exactly. Which is interesting because I, I, in the course of like doing my little various, uh, comics, comic, I was in the Comixology app a lot and it's fascinating to me. They've really improved that app for the iPad, just a tremendous deal with the various smart lists. Although what's insane is at the bottom, they have a recommended for you, uh, list of books. And, and yet there's no way you can actually buy them in the app, of course. So it's like, oh, hey, there's that thing. I hope I remember that someday. But I was like, oh, shit, World World number four is out. I have not picked it up. In fact, I didn't go to the store this week, but I got the have sense you, that it went out. Have you been reading Weird Worlds up until then? Yeah. Issues one through three. Skull the Slayer popped up in issue three, baby. So I was I was there for and all there's, of it. Um, Christar, but it's not Christar. Who is it? Yes, it's the it's the the the, the green guy from Christar. But I can't remember. Bo, Bojack, Bojack, or Bo 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 Bridges. Bo Bridges, I think, is his name. Yeah. Is it a war Bo? Bo Bridges. No, no, it's Bo Bridges. I I because <laughs> he builds bridges with his arrows. I don't understand why oh, you don't. Oh God, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> oh my God, would that not be the greatest thing? <laughs> Oh, whoever is whoever is running with the Chrysler mythology next? Because I'm, I guess it's going to be in the. the oh, weird you know world what? Book. It's also it's pronounced Christar. That's the, the we had someone in our threads correct you for but correcting it's, it's me. Probably because it's crystal, right? Yeah. It's just changing the R. Yeah, I'm calling Chrysler. That's sorry, I've been doing it since childhood. Okay, that's it's, totally fine like with me as weird. long as it's your weird. You know, oh, no, I I know I'm wrong, okay. but it's it's like my. It took me years to say Submariner. Oh, yeah. Me too. Because I grew up saying Submariner. Submariner, yeah. And were you a Magneto or a Magneto person? I was always Magneto, but I want to say that might be because I heard it in a cartoon when I was a kid. Oh, okay. That that could be. I I, I think I I got that one right. But, I mean, I pronounced so many names wrong, like characters' names and – and and of course the 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 writer's names poor Doug Moench you know or Mench I've never gotten his name right ever and even after his like telling all of us in his very charming panel at WonderCon his little retrospective like such an amazing humble guy and he was like yeah the question I get asked most is how do you pronounce your name and he told all of us I think he even gave us a simple monomic that I managed to forget. You know, um, so anyway, right, yes, Bo Bridges, uh, Tony Isabella, who is sort of the, the fanboy's fanboy. Cause dude, one of the things that actually breaks my heart and I'm sure I'm not the only one is he did like a three part daredevil story that was entirely about, you know, shield needing daredevil's help that like a, a, a war has broken out between Hydra and aim and Tony Isabella, God bless him, sat down and, and put it like even on the letters page, he figured out the entire history of how all these uh, scientific organizations inside Marvel at that time all were related to each other and how they all developed and who ran who and what and which started off as a sub branch that split off. It was a beautiful piece of work that as far as I know, no one has ever paid any attention to. You know. Oh, and, I, and of course now it's all been retconned away now that you oh, have of the course. Yeah, right. straight of Hydra name. My my Tony Isabella 
lost to history story that I love so much is his original pitch for the champions was great and oh, yeah. was utterly sunk by Marvel's editorial belief at the time. Oh yeah, tell, tell me. You know about this? His original pitch was it's a buddy movie uh, using the only two characters of X-Men who aren't used anymore, Angel and Iceman, who are going to go on a road trip across America. Oh man. And Marvel at the time were like, no, a team has to have four, five members, mm-hmm. one of them has to be a woman, and one of them has to be a sh- And that's how it ended up being Hercules Ghost Rider. Oh, and one of them has to have an ongoing book. Okay. That's why it ended up being Hercules Ghost Rider, Black Widow, Angel, and Iceman. For some reason, Skype did a little bloop thing, so I caught, what was it after a woman? It was... It had to be a woman, mm-hmm. a strong man, and a character who has their own book. Thank you. Wow. That was the five mm-hmm. character formula that Marvel had identified for a, a superhero team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is how you end up with Hercules, the strong man, Black Widow, the woman, and Ghost Rider, who has his own book. Who has his own book, yeah. Because otherwise, let's face it, Champions makes no sense. Even that, I mean, that's one of the things that I thought was really sad about Champions was, because it's a book, I mean, as a, as a kid who bought I, just about every issue, I was like, yeah! It's a team book. It's got characters that I like and characters I don't really care about, but it's also very much when it's Marvel and I'll buy it. Um, but yeah, there's in the book themselves, like the, the people writing letters are, you know, why, why these characters? And then the next issue, why? And then in the text, like they're all standing around and they're all, you know, it's very much the, the thing that's hilarious is in Defenders, this comes up a lot. A lot of the, like, why are these, why is this group together? We can't even... Exactly. You know. we're, we're an anti-team. We're a non-team. Yes. Right. And so once they had that, I mean, at least they kind of had that. But you knew in the in the back of whoever put the book together, and again, I want to say it's Roy Thomas. It was Roy Thomas. Yeah, right. yeah. It, it was. It was. It was that idea of, like, here's all the characters who are not strong enough to carry their own books... Let's put them in a let's and put the them Hulk. in a thing together, right? Well, honestly, I feel like the Hulk had up until that time, up until the Defenders' time, he was still kind of he. It had been real touch and go with that character for a long time. I mean, as you know, he got his book got canceled way back when, and then he got brought back in whichever Tales book he he ends up taking over the numbering for. But, um, but yeah, right. And the Hulk. And it was kind of like, really? You're, it's, it's a miracle that they didn't end up with like Dr. Doom and somebody else in there. You know, I'm trying to think like there had to be some other character who just like couldn't keep his own book, like Jimmy Woo from like shield or something like that. So <laughs> that would be great. If Jimmy Woo had been one of the founding defenders. <laughs> that would be great. Actually, I don't know if it would be that great, but, uh, but it, it, it seems like it should be great. You'd want to believe that it was great. So, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of Iron Fist as a character, which is really weird, uh, to, you know, reread it <laughs> because, there's not a lot of Iron Fists in those Iron Fist issues. Uh, I, I remember reading Essential Iron Fist, which mm-hmm. came years ago now. Right. Uh, and I just remember it being rocky as shit until he gets his own book. And yes. Basically until Claremont appears. It's it's astonishingly everything I think about his Iron Fist is not there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very much Chris Claremont comes in and Claremont with a number of his – Interests and obsessions really clicks. Like, I swear to God, 
What do you think happens in this? Well, you know, because you read the essentials, the very second ish Iron Fist story with Chris Claremont, what ends up happening? Iron Fist ends up playing softball, you know, and it's just and gets mind controlled. Yes. And has to be saved by seven women. <laughs> mind controlled and talk about how much they love being mind controlled. You know, he, and that and is the, the shadow king turns up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's about that because there really is actually a level of like, um, it 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 is it, he Iron Fist ends up getting involved in a softball game. Chris Claremont makes a makes a cameo uh, as himself. Of course, of course he does. Of course he does. And at the end of it, the princess who's been captured, the last page has the guy talking about how he's going to break her to his will utterly. And that's like the big, you know, finale. And it's, so it's totally, it's amazing how much of Claremont's, uh, uh, it, you know, obsessions are right there. And it's, which is, which is kind of charming. The, but the second part of it really is like Pat Broderick is a surprisingly good choice to sort of keep up with the look that Arvel Jones has, which he's taken from Larry Hama, which is amazing because these are all degrees of kind of functional and sketchy. And and one of the things I really appreciate about John Byrne, I mean, Claremont's good, but Claremont and Byrne are are right on the same page pretty much from the first page of Marvel premiere issue 25. And what I think is great is both of them are kind of like, we want to do a superhero book, you know, and the way in which they make their desire to do a superhero book. And by having Danny Rand want to be a superhero is kind of, I don't know. It just, it just worked for me, but just the fact that you read like the first I don't know, like nine issues of uh, Marvel premiere and John Byrne comes, looks at the design. And one of the first things he does is like, you know what? You got to give this guy Spider-Man eyes. You, can, you can't because all the rest of them have the dragon shape, but it's his eyes peering out and it gives him a weirdly kind of naked. It doesn't look like he's fully dressed kind of thing. And Byrne's just like, nope. Well, but, but again, how much of that is real and how much of that is because that's how we now know the character? Uh, that I, I, you know, for some, well, for me, who was, who I uh, was reading the character at the time, I mean, and that's kind of blurry because, you know, considering the, the way in which I was picking up these books and, I, like I don't think I, I'm tr I don't think I, I ended up buying Mar Iron Fist like on the newsstand. I want to say until maybe issue seven or eight. So all the rest of it was sort of half filled in in back issues, but in my brain it's all sort of one continuum. So yeah, by the time I first encounter the character, but I've got issues of Marvel Premiere that are the the Mensch and Hama issues. And at the time, you know, like when you're a kid, you're just kind of like, this doesn't look good, you know? And it it's because Larry Hama, bless his heart, you know, totally functional storyteller, new stuff about the actual martial arts, which gave, gave the book a certain degree of verisimilitude. But, you know, but I do feel like Byrne was like, you know, I'm putting the Spider-Man eyes in there. I, to me, that looks right because honestly, and I think this is a lesson I learned with, like, say, Deadpool. Spider-Man eyes work pretty goddamn well on just about anything. 
You know? oh, Spider-Man eyes are great. If just if nothing else, from a cartooning point of view. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's just one of those amazing decisions. You know that. I mean, Steve Ditko. Jesus, that guy is. You know, he, he he's a bit of a nut bar, uh, and I, I'm sure that's a controversial <laughs> opinion. But uh, I but, thought you were going to say like. Steve Ditko is a pretty good artist. He has some good design choices, and I was going to say that's a controversial decision. Right, that, exactly. That is yeah, I'm following it up with the second. Yeah, my second controversial statement, which is which is Ditko is an amazing fucking designer for for comics, and uh, it's really fascinating, sort of watching how some of his choices, even something as secondhand, because you can look at a character like Iron Fist and it's clear they tried to come up with a number. I don't, I honestly don't know. Don't, I think I might've seen a picture of Everett's original amazing man character. Don't really remember what it looks like, but oh, he's, he's, he's got a great design. Does he? Uh, it's not, it's, I was going to say it's nothing like Iron Fist. And now that I think about it, it might actually be quite like Iron Fist. Hmm. Let me see. Here. Um, Oh, actually, you know what? I might be getting the Bill Everett design mixed up with the the oh um, the All Star Squadron. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is so funny. Yeah, wow. God bless him. Yeah, no, I think I do think that Amazing that, Man in the that's not the same character, right? It's not the same outfit. It it's not the same outfit, but yeah, I mean, look at that. That is <laughs> the the cover that I'm looking at. I'm like, huh? Actually, I'm like, I'm wondering if this is intentional or not. He's it sort of looks a little bit like Lee Kung the Thunderer's outfit, just with you know, with without a mask. So I don't know, but yeah, the the Amazing Man that you see in All Star Squadron and stuff. I, unfortunately, I don't know enough about that character to to see if Roy Thomas was once again being like, eh, he's public domain. This will be fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, it wasn't uh, uh, his public domain as much as uh, I don't think anyone was doing anything with this name. Mm, mm-hmm. I think it's literally just he's, he's using the name mm-hmm. uh, because he was definitely a, a, it was like a, it was a it was a Thomas original, which is to say <laughs> heavily lifted off of other sources, <laughs> right? But but I don't think it's like a straight up revival. Oh, okay. Well, no, no, yeah, not not yeah, not a revival, but but yeah, a bit of a surreptitious the same the same way that iron fist is a very surreptitious swipe of various aspects the the main bulk of the aspects of amazing man as i understand and frankly this is one of those times where what i should do is start hunting around at the at, at one of the public domain comic sites and seeing if i can find the find the issues and read them so so iron fist yeah iron fist ends up being a character that i love and it is almost entirely um Claremont and Byrne, although I have to say one of the things, like I said, when Tony Isabella throws Batrock the Leaper in there, he's like, yeah, I want to make this guy, I want to make Iron Fist a superhero. Here he is fighting Batrock. Um, unfortunately, Batrock is still talking like Pepe Le Pew, which is... Oh, what do you mean, unfortunately? That's one of, that's maybe my favorite thing about Batrock, in all seriousness. It, it is one of the things that I, how do I put it? I like it in some places. It is so jarring for the tone of what they're going for, for Iron Fist in the previous issues, that part of me is like, oh, okay, I can see... It's Isabella wants to change the tone, but it is so it's such a rough transition. And Arvel Jones, again, just who I'm trying to think what else Jones did that I've read recently. I want to say he pops up on on Deathlock or something like that, either as a 
penciler that Buckler inks or vice versa. Um, uh, Isabella has his really starts with the idea of I'm Iron Fist because it, it's that second person narrative, you know, bright lights, big city, but with Kung Fu dudes, uh, you know, you are Iron Fist, but who are you? And at the end, when he finally removes his mask and you see Danny Rand for the first time, it's it's this note of like, oh, OK, this guy's going to discover who he is. And, and God bless them. Claremont and Byrne just double down on that. So having having I've just really liked Danny Rand was one of those guys who rather than trying to make him more and more complicated, he was somebody who was trying to, I guess, in the course of figuring out who he was, he sort of became simpler and simpler by, by which I mean like Iron Fist is, was one of those dudes who seemed like a really inherently decent guy, you know? Um, and in fact, one of the things that I liked about him, and this would be the way if someone was like, okay, you try and pitch Iron Fist to me, Jeff, it'd be like, it, it's almost like a Kung Fu version of big. He is, he was a kid, you know, he like lost both his parents, but he's like 10 years old or nine years old when that happens and he ends up in Kunlun and unlike say Bruce Wayne, who comes out as Batman, you know, essentially he comes out as this like vengeance hunting killer turns away from that path. And then in the course of rediscovering himself is kind of like, is, is basically just a good kid is a good person and is, and as a good person, isn't particularly interested in being rich, although he ends up being it, you know, his main problem is kind of how can I, how can I keep this incredibly cantankerous girlfriend that I have that I'm in love with, you know? And, uh, and uh, wait, is his girlfriend by that point, Misty Knight? Is she Misty Knight is, is not, they've, they've done the classic, like, you know, she's always pushing him away, but then she's always like, you know, like worried about him and it's that classic Claremont. So who, who's, like, the, who's the cantankerous girlfriend to this point? Oh, I just, I just mean he's already in love with Misty Knight and that's okay, okay. So, and, and that is another thing that I think is kind of great about some of the ways things go, these things go. Cause clearly before Claremont, you know, comes in, it's very much set up like, cause there's this whole thing with professor wing and his daughter, Colleen, who's, you know, and the idea that, Colleen Wing is supposed to be the woman who's like knows him and is interested in him and is his friend, you know, that he's, you know, going out to movies with or whatever before she gets kidnapped and, you know, and does get brain, not just brainwashed once, but brainwashed twice. Essentially, they, they have to brainwash her like several different times to get the scene where she and Iron Man, Iron Fist fight and then the great thing is, is in order to defeat her, he uses his Iron Fist power to mind meld with her, share his chi and their souls link. And then, of course, she's more or less like, you know, again, another great Claremont, you know, trope. Her basically being pissed off because, you know, he raped her mind by not asking her permission or whatever. And it's just like, oh, Chris, Chris Claremont, you and the mind rape. He's like, I don't know. I sat down to write this script and I looked up two hours later and all I'd written was mind rape on like five pages. I'm going to be a little late with this issue because I don't know what's going on with me. Holy that, shit. I'm talking. I just wrote mind rape again while I was talking to you on the phone. What's going on with me? 
So, and then he turns to the camera and he goes, but this is going to serve me well for the next 15 years of X-Men comics. But see, okay. And winks. <laughs> You're right. Doink. Here's the thing, Graham. Here's a great question for you, as long as we're not, once again, getting anywhere near whatever topics you and I had planned out for ourselves or each other. Do you think that mind, that mind rape was the big selling served him well element, like this was great, like – Element to what made what made the X Men sell and sell and sell and sell no, no, and no, no, sell some more. Okay, no. so that that's but my thing. Fact, but the fact that the X Men did sell and sell and sell and sell and sell, and the the reason for that, I think, is that Claremont managed to create an inner life for his characters that other Marvel creators didn't. Yeah, and most importantly, managed to do that for the female characters. Yes. Um, well, so that yes. A, female readers could could see themselves in there and B, male readers could have crushes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that went beyond the whatever other sort of fantasies they had about the female characters before that because you did have more complex female characters and female characters who had agency, which I'm not sure how much that was a conscious thing in the way they appeal to, to the male readers, but I, I would be very surprised if it wasn't an unconscious thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But because of all this, because he, he's doing that, and because it is selling, he does then manage to get his his own personal interests in there a bunch. Yeah. And his own personal interests are very much split between, these are strong female characters, and and then I will have them mind-controlled. Right. Yeah, I, like it, 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 it's and and to and sort of take it away from the mind control a bit as well. It's not as much always mind control as much as it's here are strong characters, strong female characters who have agency, mm-hmm. and I will then strip that agency from them. Yeah, and the story in which they get it back is the one that he's very interested in. He's very interested in. Uh, uh, I'm trying not to say power exchange, but that's what I mean. Yeah. No, 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 no. Um, exactly. I, I, and I think that's actually a big point too. Is, is, and, 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 but it is, it's, it's, he's very much interested in the, not just the taking away, but the, the aftermath of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you have that. So it's not always mind control, although for a lot of it, it is straight up mind control. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also characters that get kidnapped or, you know, you sort of so much, Outright mind control in New Mutants, but in New Mutants, like, he kills them, and then when he brings them back, they have no soul for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or you have Ilyana, who is at war with herself, mm-hmm. literally, and so that her agency as as the good guy, as Ilyana, is constantly under threat mm-hmm. by her own demonic essence. You know, so he finds other ways into this. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. About, it's all about the, there's the woman, and now they're helpless, but they're not helpless. That's right. Yeah. It, that's, yeah. That's just... Sorry, keep going. No, I'm done. I'm done. After saying that's his thing twice, I was me. <laughs> oh, that's his thing. All I heard was that's it's, that's it's, and I'm like, oh, shit, he's going that's somewhere his to thing. the board. Yeah. That's his thing, Well, Jeff. one of the things, again, seeing this issue where it's like, it's his first issue, and it's like there's a softball game, there's the self cameos, 
and there is a lot of he loves jamming lots of words into characters' mouths, and he loves giving everyone names. Like the the issue that I just started reading not long before you and I talked, uh, Iron Fist is infiltrating this fortress to get back the captured Colleen Wing, who was kidnapped like a while ago, and uh, he uh, like the opening page is like this guard walking along, and he gets jumped by uh, by Iron Fist. And all of his little, like, thought balloons are like, ah, oh, I can't wait to go into town and see Louisa. Maybe I'll be able to ask her out on a blah, blah, you know, and then his, his oh, brain yeah, gets totally. Yeah. But it's so great because, because Claremont was all about creating the tiny little short stories about people. Yeah. I mean, uh, for people listening to the Explain the Explain podcast, Harvey and Janet is a running joke there because you have Harvey and Janet, the hell, uh, fire club people. <laughs> Who have like they're called Harvey and Janet, and they have like there's like a three panel sequence where they're talking about their lives before they get attacked by Wolverine. Yeah, yeah. And Claremont loved doing that. Yeah, or yeah. even in, in his narration. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like before the action happens, mm-hmm. he'll have a page of like people sitting in a bar, mm-hmm. and he'll be like, "It's a bar at twelve thirty on a Saturday night. Nobody's here if they've got anywhere else to go." Yes, you know, and he'll he'll, he'll do that whole setting of the scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then no. it'll be like, but then, and you know, like Wolverine will fucking fly through a window or something. Right. And you'll never see any of those characters again. Yes. But Claremont's like, I'm the fucking Raymond Carver of comics, you guys. <laughs> and you know, in a way, at least at the superhero level, he totally was. I think there's a lot to be said for his success has a tremendous amount to do with that sort of uh, generous nature where he's like, Hey, okay. I just, you know, I want to give you a little bit about what's going on with like, you know, Frank and Steve, the two security guards at Stark international that Iron Fist jumps in issue one. But you know, almost as if like when someone comes to him and is like, so listen, we're canceling Iron Fist, but uh, we want you to do like a mini series about Stark security guards. He's like, I got totally the people. I don't, I got this. I've got this. You know, it's, he's, I said, I'm Frank and Steve six months ago. Totally. I mean, the, the amount of, and it's great. The whole, the, the way, and also the way everyone powers up, which is wonderful, but is, is also kind of ridiculous but it's ridiculous in just the best way because you've got iron fist he's got you know there's professor wing who's the antiquities professor who hires you know hires iron fist to protect him and of course later it just turns out to be just this huge ridiculous you know the a cult and a ninja and a ninja who's protecting the book but then later turns out to be like blah 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 colleen wing goes from being more or less a, well, actually, this, this there is a, there is a there is an issue again under Isabella, not Claremont, where Iron Fist breaks into Colleen Wing's apartment and Misty Knight like kicks the shit out of him, and then and he more or less like nerve pinches her to to defeat her, and then is like, who the hell was that? You know, so there is a lot of that stuff going on. So like Isabella is like, oh yeah, Colleen Wing, Misty Knight, they're like tough private detectives. And Claremont's like, yeah, but one of them's a samurai and the other one's got a bionic arm. I love the bionic arm reveal in Iron Fist so very much. And, and meanwhile, there's <laughs> Lieutenant Rafe Scarf, who is this police dude who of course was like Misty's ex-partner and he was for the partner yeah yeah 
and, you know, is more or less the, the guy that Iron Fist keeps interacting with. But, you know, so he's like there and he goes and there's one issue or something where he's like, oh, this I haven't seen this kind of action back in Nam, you know, and it's of course he's got all of this training. It's just great. Like everyone in a Chris Claremont book ends up being like a ninja, you know, or they've got amazing defense skills or it just so happens that they've got a bionic foot and it's Okay, here great. here are the the one here's the one recurring character in a Claremont book who that is not true of. Mm. And it could just honestly be the one. <laughs> Neil Conan, NPR reporter. <laughs> Who comes back a lot in the X-Men. Yeah, right, right. Well, but no, he's never an NPR reporter. Sure. Well, and that's the thing that's great. The, the extent to which people like... Um, like, you know, Myra McTaggart, who doesn't have any special powers, but she's always there in the background. Or even... Myra McTaggart's special powers is fucking being every scientist known to man. Yes, right. Well, that's, 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 that's a Marvel she, she, problem. She's a super, no, yeah, I know, but she's a super scientist. That's, that's one of her things. All right. And also, as soon as Byrne shows up, uh, always being seen in a skin tight leotard. Oh God! Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, the the skin tight I'm, no, stuff. No, I'm, I'm a scientist. You have to take seriously. Excuse me while I get into my bright yellow and pink skin tight outfit. <laughs> or who's uh, Peter Corbeau? There's another guy who oh, used Peter to Corbeau, yeah. but he he's um, he predates X Men. Yeah, he Peter does. Comes about in shit. Is it an Avengers issue? Even? I, I think he does. I think he comes if in. It's not Avengers part... and his Hulk. Then uh, he definitely appears early. Yeah, he definitely does. But but like he might appear in one of those issues that remember. There's that issue of the Avengers where Chris Claremont's the one who provides the like. Yeah, it's the Sentinels, isn't it? Yeah, the I Sentinels mean? one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Where he's like, so I feel like Peter Corbeau and Starcore pop up like during that era of Thomas. Thomas's Avengers, but when Chris Claremont's clearly around being like, hey guys, shouldn't he be like a dashing French Canadian, you know, or something? Because I've got a dashing French Canadian accent that I'm totally looking forward to trying out. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I'm just, I, I, we'll see about how the rest of my purchases uh, turn out because God knows I know a lot of the, the, Having read them the first time around, the Luke Cages are some really rocky stuff as well. Up until yeah, they point. they are. But you got you got some Paramount and Iron Fists, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, how many did you get? And what ones? Uh, give me a second. Did, did you get into the Joe Duffy run? Is what I'm really asking. I don't think so because I don't think digitally they have that. Oh no, no, no! Wait, wait! I'm sorry, I I, I misspoke. Let me let me double check because I think actually I did. Do you, do you know when that is, roughly? It's fairly early. It's like 54 or 56. Yeah, then I totally did. Because, I mean, I think what happened was whatever trade you checked out from the library, I have, like, the digital, you know, the digital issues that were created from that. Oh, so, I know. didn't check out anything from the library, Jeff. I own the entire Joe Duffy run of Fire. Oh, you do? I... From that damn store? Oh. No, 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 no. From years ago. But... I thought you got rid of the majority of your comics. Were they ones that you actually kept? Oh no, I got I got them since you came to the states. Okay, okay. So you got them since you came to the states, and then you've had them for years, as well as having them before. Well, that's what a heartwarming story that is, Graham McMillan. I have to tell you, you're great. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you on the British reprints of those. Ah, 
Yeah, uh, let me see here. Um, Iron Fist, 1 through 15. Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, 1 through 16. Then Power Man, 48, 49. Power Man and Iron Fist starting from issue 50 and running through to issue uh, uh, 70. Oh, man. You've got some great stuff in there, then. Yeah, I know, right? So You've got uh, Kerry Gamble's, a, a bunch of Kerry Gamble's rock. I really liked Kerry Gamble. You know, he, his work was really kind of just sort of that generically clean work at Marvel that I really admired. And so, but I'm what, kind of what's really funny that. is he immediately follows Trevor Von Eden on the book. Oh, wow. It's Joe Duffy and Trevor Von Eden for a while. And Trevor Von Eden became a great artist. <laughs> I'm going to be polite and say Trevor Von Eden is not a great artist when he's doing Power Man and Iron Fist. Huh. And so Gamble shows up, you're like, oh, thank God, someone who understands proportion. Right, right, right. And yeah. so while he is, you know, solid, he's not the most dynamic artist, uh, he, he, his, he really brings a, an impact to that book when he shows up. Well, see, and that's it. I've always been a sucker for solid, but not, you know, like, and, and especially very solid and and uh, very finished looking work. I, I was always a, like when Bob, when New Mutants launched, and it's Bob McLeod doing the art. It's like I'm like, ah, look at this stuff! Wow, this is great. You know, and now I'm kind of like, when Kevich came on, you're like, God damn it! I kind of was a little pissed. I have to admit, I was like, what is up? And of course, everyone loved it, and I was still just enough of a young kid and a contrarian where I'm like. This is Bullshit. Although, to, to be fair, there, there's a buffer in between of Sal Buscema for like three issues. Right. Where I was like, eh, like, is, isn't that the one where they like end up in some like New Rome city? New yeah, Roman... Roma. Yeah. Thank you. Oh my God. That's, oh. Uh, New Mutants again was my jam when I was a kid. Very much uh, from the Sienkiewicz through to, through to the end of Claremont, really. Wow. I checked out. Pretty much in Louise Simonson's first issues, not because of her, but because I really didn't like Brett Blevins. Ah, uh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I had some tonal problems with Louise Simonson, also, and and at the time, and Nocenti's work, you know, because they they were both kind of it seemed making the transition from editorial to writing at the same time, and both of them had like a very flat, bright plastic you know, kind of sound to their dialogue. What's a mate? Like you should revisit some of that stuff then, Jeff. First of all, they're very different writers. And so oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. So you're like, eh, both of them. Uh, because <laughs> Nishanti's dialogue in particular. Oh is yeah. Amazing. I, I love it now. I love it now, but it was just a, I mean, that's the thing. I grew up, I grew up thinking Chris Claremont's dialogue sounded naturalistic. So, you know, like, <laughs> That that took so a long know. time to to shake yeah. off too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so hey, I want to I want to spin us around entirely differently. Okay, and say, did you get to the store this week? I did not. This week was a not not to the store me. So, um, I've I my I didn't get to the store either, but I've read a bunch of stuff either digitally or, or comps, mm-hmm. and I am staggered to say that I think my favorite book of the week. Justice League, and it's all because of the art. Oh, I I saw. I actually peeked. At, you had a you had a couple of panels on the wait. What Tumblr? In fact, yeah, Francis Manipal is mm-hmm. the guest artist for this arc. Mm-hmm. 
right? And he is also coloring with an assist from Brian Buccioletto, who was his colorist and co-writer on Flash. Mm-hmm. And holy shit, that book looks amazing. Really? Amazing. I don't know if it's Maniple or if it's Buccioletto or both, but they have basically taken a color uh, page out of Batman's book. Mm-hmm. So you have some bright ass colors in there. Wow. Like fluorescent psychedelic colors mm-hmm. with uh, Maniple going. And I, I thought I was enjoying Jason Fabok's art in Justice League before this. I right. think overall Justice League is the strongest it's been probably since it's launched with this current arc. Uh-huh. Um, but Fabok's on it and Fabok has been doing a very sort of – photorealistic is not the right way of putting it. But he's got a very – you remember him from doing the bad books. Yeah. He's got a, a sort of uh, – naturalistic take on David Finch's art. Mm, I think that's a good way to put it, yeah. Uh, and then Maniple comes on with with a sort of simplified version of his lines from Flash, mm-hmm. which were in themselves fairly cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And amazing colours. <laughs> and the book just pops. And it's happening at a time where, plot-wise, for it's the Dark Side War, everyone, uh, Jones has killed off Dark Side. Yeah, yeah, that's part hmm. of the plot. Mm-hmm. The New Gods characters are getting merged with the Justice League through mm-hmm. various events. So Batman has basically stolen Metrion's chair mm-hmm. and become the new Metrion. Mm-hmm. Um, the Flash ended up getting possessed by the Black Racer. Mm-hmm. Superman has been, you don't quite know what's going on with him, but he has somehow been deterred by being powered up through Apocalypse mm-hmm. instead of Earth's Sun. So he's essentially now like negative anti-Superman. Hmm. Um, and the end issue is essentially Lex Luthor becomes the new Darkseid. <laughs> uh, he, he, gets, he gets charged up by the Omega Beam. Mm-hmm. So you have this like absolutely ridiculous plot uh, and this astounding art. And I just finished being like, why isn't Justice League always like this? <laughs> this is amazing. So, uh, uh, yes, so... I read books that were better this mm-hmm. week. But like that one just afterwards, I was like, I want to read more of this right now. Right. That kind of like, yes, this is a big dumb comic in a way that I that's lovely to look at and I, I want more of this. Yes. Which, yeah. is, which is an appeal, I have to say. Uh... So, so you're you're overall down with that arc, I guess. I, I am overall down with the arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels very much like John's doing Blackest Night mm-hmm. again. I mean, very much like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the, you know, it's the end of the universe. <laughs> you've got the characters getting changed by coming into contact with. A familiar force from DC lore, mm-hmm. which happens in Blackest Night as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, because it's the midway point, or it's, it's the beginning of the second arc, um, that all the characters are, are swayed by their own hubris. Mm. So none of them are like, this is bad. <laughs> you know, they're all like, no, I can, I can, I can do more now that I'm more powerful. Right. You know, which is it's it's an amazingly Johnsian trope. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, in John's, no, first of all, in every John's epic, at some point, a character will become supercharged. Mm-hmm. But never go, this is bad. They'll always be like, just you wait. Now that I've got like power, everything will be fine. Right. Uh, and because it's a John's arc, of course it won't. And you'll mm-hmm. find out that in four issues when something terrible happens. <laughs> uh, but, but, so like, I know the pacing of the story very much. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely no doubt that the story will be over in eight issues. Uh, I know that within like three mm-hmm. of Justice League, although it's spinning off into like six different standalone issues, uh, but within three issues of Justice League, something bad will have happened and one of the characters, probably Batman, will realize like this, this is not right. This can't stand. Um, you have your one character who's not been affected by all this, who's Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. who is point of view character, who will basically do the narration for the rest of the story, and talk about how all her friends have changed, uh, and she does not have a place in the world anymore because all her friends are different, and then she has to save them. Like it's it's the John's arc, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm down with it. It's it's being done so well, and it's really benefiting from the DC books being where they are right now. Mm-hmm. Because it used to be that Batgirl would stick out because Batgirl was the only book that was doing that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Justice League now sticks out because how many other books are actually doing this sort of like dumb superhero thing at DC right now? Mm. There's literally this, and there's Justice League of America, and right. that's it. Right. And ironically, or maybe not ironically, but Justice League of America is also great right now and feels very refreshing. Oh, yeah? And Justice League of America is literally redoing Grant Morrison's first arc in JLA. Oh, right. Justice League of America is the Hitch reboot, right? It's the right, Hitch right. reboot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is. It's doing a slower version of the of Morrison's first arc in JLA. Wow. Uh, except this time it's Kryptonians instead of Martians. But that... Right? But, and so again, I know exactly what's going to happen with that story. Mm-hmm. But there's something about its execution that is fully refreshing. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I really find myself surprisingly down with these books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I got to admit, it's, it's, it's funny. There was some point where, for me, is, is, Hard as I tried, and I have to admit, I did not especially try that hard. As hard as I tried, I tried. Eh. Yeah, that that I every time I tried giving a shot at at Justice League or I think even Justice League of America, which you know debuted when Johns was, of course, writing both books. They just never quite clicked for me. Like there was something you know that just didn't. The, the relationships didn't really gel, like, because they were, in theory, new relationships. Even with John's trying to set up the new relationships in that first arc of Justice League, I'm just kind of like, I don't care, really. So Yeah, Justice League has actually been, it's been a really flawed book. And before this arc, uh, it, was in, it was really in trouble. Well, and was that the Starro or the Amazovirus or? Yep, yeah, the Amazovirus, which okay. was like almost a black hole of interest. Wow. The, the, it was, and it's so interesting because you can tell that like at some point he had the idea and oh. he was like, oh wait, it's Amazo, but it's a virus. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's a virus that gets out and gives everyone powers based upon the Justice League. Mm-hmm. Like, I can do a story based on that. And every single issue felt like he was like, oh, shit, I really can't. Right, right. I, yeah, I yeah. can't. I've, I've started the story and fuck, I've got to finish it somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think uh, – I remember way back when around the time of Batman R.I.P. and Final Crisis – coming up that there weren't there rumors that there was going to be a right we're going to have the justice league become the new gods wasn't that like a a rumor that was floating around back then i really don't remember that oh okay it would not surprise me because mm-hmm. it was a a a justice league like it, it was a new god story and it was a new god story about the new gods ending yes right and so I remember – I swear that I remember the rumors being like, ah, and the idea is that the Justice League are going to get the blah, blah, blah. And they, I swear they even had some of the promo art that I feel like I've seen since with Batman with the with sort of the Metron lights or whatever. So I don't know. It's just, it's, So it's one of those things that also has me wondering, like, I wonder how much of this is, you know – even if it's just John's being like, oh, this is an idea I've had up my sleeve for a long time, which thanks to the miracle of not reading internet news sites where literally every week there's interviews with people. And I'm sure John's has already talked, you know, extensively about every issue of dark side war. If he, if I, he I won't, like it again, maybe I'm not reading the right things. I don't think I've seen John's talk about this at all. Oh, that's interesting and great. Um, uh, you know, I mean, just in the sense of being able to read read the book and enjoy it, but uh, but it's also kind of interesting because it, in a theory, I mean, I'm fascinated by the way in which Justice League seems to have had a number of small big events for DC, right? Like, isn't this a little bit like the all the Trinity War stuff that was seemed like it was building. It just really ended up being limited to the titles and then some of the miniseries tie-ins, right? Yeah, they did, they did Trinity War, which was essentially just a Justice League crossover and the, um, what was it called? Pandora and Phantom Stranger. Right. And maybe maybe Constantine? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. And then they did Forever Evil, which uh, I think Forever Evil was a terrible move for Justice League. Mm-hmm. As, as a franchise, mm-hmm. I think it literally sucked whatever life was left there completely away. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely killed Justice League of America, as mm-hmm. was the, mm-hmm. the not the the current Hitch book, but the but the previous version. It killed that book's done dead. Hmm. Um, to the point where they then relaunched as Justice League Unlimited, which then got relaunched again recently with. Uh, with Parker and has now been cancelled, which is a shame because Justice League Unlimited right now is actually a super fun book. Mm-hmm. But much like Justice League Dark before it, you get the feeling like the, the reason it's called Justice League is because they think they can sell the Justice League name. Right. As opposed to there being any reason in the story for it to be called Justice League. Right. There, like there's... Justice League Dark never made sense. Right. Well, because it was sort of their – in that way it looked – at least superficially, like they were trying to do with do with Marvel the Justice Avengers. League what Marvel had done with Avengers exactly for for the same reasons and with the same idea. But it's kind of a shame because definitely under Jeff Lemire's pen, mm-hmm. Justice League Dark was a pretty good book for about a year and a half. Right. 
Um, and under Parker's uh, Justice League United is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But Justice League United, uh, and I'm this is when I'm going to say something that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but still, uh, should have been sold as like a DC team up book because that's what it is. Mm. It's like a core cast of four characters who then grab other random characters from the DC universe for a specific mission. Hmm. You know, and it's it's because it's Jeff Parker writing it. It's a great random selection of characters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first story is like, let's get Poison Ivy and Swamp Thing and I want to say the demon. <laughs> wow. Uh, and then it's like, what if we have Sergeant Rock and Vandal Savage and Robot Man for the second arc? That, that sounds great. You it, know, it, and you're like, that's fun. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that sort of what they ended up doing and i honestly don't know so and i i'd be shocked if you did but wasn't the final season of justice league the animated series yeah it was, was pretty much that that thing yeah well, the, the, the setup was the justice league at that point was every superhero oh, i see and so, so it, was like it, Robbins, it was like literally like on the members we need this week are mm-hmm. you know floronic man and the question <laughs> And right. the atom, and I say that, and then I was like, I could see them making that work. <laughs> <laughs> that was the way that series worked. They would totally be like, yes, <laughs> Black Canary and Floronic Man together. <laughs> and it's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, well, what what else, Graham? What else do you have Even to tell us about girls it? get the plants. Um, nice. I was, I was like, make it work, make it work. <laughs> um, and did I? No, I didn't. Um, what else? You know, what I've been re- you know, what I've been enjoying more than anything recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been doing what the kids call a deep dive on Bad Machinery, the ah, John Huston comic. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in large part because I saw that Oni had the fourth collection coming out this week, mm-hmm. which is I think it's called The Case of the Lonely One. Uh, and I was like, I love that comic. I'm going to reread all of it from the start. Uh, which is a bunch of comics, it turns out. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. But they're so, it's so perfectly tuned to my sense of humor and my sense of the ridiculous. Hmm. So, have you ever read Bad Machinery? I, I have to admit, I have, I still have not. Like, after you talked about one of the trades in very uh, glowing terms, I picked up a digital version, uh, about, a year ago, and for the Kindle, which may explain, is part exactly. of the explanation. You probably got through like two pages and then thought, fuck this for a game of soldiers. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do anything else. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't quite that. I don't remember if the format really was as, as horrible as it's been in some of the other Kindle graphic novel stuff. But there was something where I was like, I'm not feeling it. I'll have to come back to it. So. Uh, well, it's it's not for everyone because it, it, mm-hmm. it's got a very specific voice that I literally think like you get or you don't. I think mm-hmm. it's it's one of those Marmite comics where if you it it I think you're either in or you're out. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I'm very much in. And so the reason that I thought about all of this was the case of the lonely one, which is the the collection that's just come out. Spoilers, everyone! I'm going to ruin it slightly. Um, the plot is, so they're all, the setup is, they are, I think at that point, 12-year-old kids mm-hmm. who solve mysteries 
uh, as part of a mystery club, which mm-hmm. they do for fun. It's three boys and three girls. Um, and A, the mysteries almost always have an absolutely ridiculous uh, explanation. <laughs> like, literally ridiculous. So you might think it starts off by being like, oh, this is going to be realistic. And then in the end, it's it's completely out of this world. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it's a comedy based on the way that kids that age view relationships. So you get a lot of, like, you know, 12-year-olds dating humor. Mm. If that makes sense, which is based on a complete lack of logic. But right. it's like, okay, we've kissed. Now we're going to be together forever type thing. Um, and the case of the lonely one is this new boy comes to the school and everyone thinks he's a bit weird because he eats onions raw like apples. Huh. And if it then becomes invasion of the body snatchers. He'll spend time with one of them. And then they'll be like, no, he's okay if you get to know him. He's a bit of a laugh. And then everyone starts saying that thing, and then everyone starts eating uh, uh, onion draw. Wow. Huh. And so the the one character who's left is like, what's going on? What the hell? And it turns out, of course, and this is where I spoil it for everyone, he's actually a living onion who looks like a boy who's been grown by aliens. <laughs> Because of course he is. Because of course um, he is. But yeah, it's it's that sort of level of ridiculousness in comedy that I just I find utterly winning. Uh and so I've read through like maybe five of the cases. And the cases last a it's uh I wanna say he updates like maybe four four or five times a week. Mm-hmm. And cases last like three or four months at a time. Wow. So it's a bunch of, of stories. It's a bunch of cartoons. Um and I just it's it's so lacking in cynicism mm-hmm. that I'm just – it's the same as Squirrel Girl for me. It's so lacking in cynicism that I'm utterly charmed by it. Ah, yeah. Squirrel Girl is great, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I'm just, I really am just like, sure. You know, you're funny, and you're, but you're not mean funny. Yeah. Absolutely inclusively funny. And you – in the case of both of these strips – you rejoice in your own ridiculousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a really massive selling point for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's it's great to see something that's like, here's a dumb idea, and it's stupid, but instead of being embarrassed, I'm going to ramp up the stupidity and then let everyone in on the joke. Yes. You know, which I love. I love that approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you end up reading? It's it's okay if you didn't read my review of it, Graham. But did you read the Colonel of Two Worlds? I did. I Jeff, I read it before you. Of course, I, you I, did. I broke that exclusive for Hollywood Reporter. And oh, did you? Oh. Well, there yeah, we go. They sent the copy before that, so I, I read it. Ah, and so and what did you think? Because of course that is a pretty absurd. Yeah, and and again. I actually really enjoyed it. I really liked it too. I, I, a, a tremendous deal. And, and of course, in the course of writing on it, uh, managed to get a little more hand ringy in some ways. But I was, I was, I am, A, I'm fascinated by how much I enjoyed it. B, how, uh, silly it was. And also kind of how much work went into it. I think that's one of the things I'm kind of at that point where, you know, cause we certainly have enough silliness out there in the world, but it seems like the people who really 
go the extra step to make it super absurd, you know, make it, make it, to make it compelling. Um, and part of the absurdity comes from just how much sort of work or effort is put into it. You know, it seems to yeah, be. Yeah. I, I, I think there's, I think there really is a, uh, I don't want to say charm again, but I'm going to say charm again. Mm-hmm. There's, there's something very compelling is the wrong word, but there's, just something very enjoyable to me about seeing a work which is ridiculous mm-hmm. and the people responsible are utterly rejoiceful about their ridiculousness. Yes. And yeah, uh, yeah. and are, are, are not trying to justify it in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And instead, and I think uh, Colonel of Two Worlds is like this. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much like uh, you know, here are all these DC comic tropes, which we always take seriously. Mm-hmm. What if we didn't? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. what if we play them straight? Yes. But also acknowledge that they're really wacky as shit. Yeah. 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 And no. I that really works about Colonel of Two Worlds. Is mm-hmm. the fact that at no point is it saying these stories are dumb. Mm-hmm. But it's also treating all of it as silly as it actually is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Um, I found it, it was fascinating for me to look at sort of more of the, what KFC has been doing with its marketing campaign. And, um, and unfortunately in that larger context, there is a very strange sort of, uh, deliberate ambiguity. I suppose about, about, you know, um, how, how, how much the sort of new twinkly eyed, this is so fantastic is, is like threatens to be an even more, you know, toxic version of, of irony. But, um, but I think, no, I, I, I think that's totally true. I think that if you look at like KFC's TV commercials right now, Oh Yeah. There really is a. It's actually the opposite of what we're talking about in many ways because it is so knowing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's laugh at this as opposed to laugh with this. Well, well, it's it is sort of a laugh at, laugh with, but there is definitely an idea of the closer, like, like it, they make a big deal of insisting on their sincerity in a way that is is clearly. Fake. Insincere, yeah. Yeah. So well, here's the thing, and I think this is what uh really works for me about Bad Machinery and Squirrel Girl. And mm-hmm. not so much Colonel of Two Worlds. Yes. But they don't they never address their sincerity. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And because of that, come across as more sincere. Exactly. Exactly. Which which is again sort of a very I agree with you, and one of the things I found interesting, Colonel of Two Worlds read it, enjoyed it, and was it's very enjoyable in a uh, in a disposable, you don't have to think about it again kind of way. It was only you know, as I was trying to figure out what the hell to say about it uh, for the website that I was like, oh wow, there, okay, yeah, there's weird stuff going on here. But yes, exactly. By not talking about sincerity, um, you know, they, the, the, other, the book's Squirrel Girl uh, comes off does come off as very sincere in a way that is really wonderful, uh, and yet 
how do I put it? So there, it's weird that there's that strange, like, it's almost like the way that our eyes see everything upside down and then our brain flips it. Like, we're getting to those stages where it's, oh, right, it's by talking about its sincerity that that's how you can tell that they're actually pointing to the opposite. And, you know, it's the, you know, we, we, we naturally understand that in, in an inherent way or maybe many other people do uh, can can understand it and then talk about it but for me talking about it and then trying to untangle it is very much like um i end up feeling like an idiot for saying incredibly obvious things so uh um <laughs> which which may be the flip side to irony uh let me talk a little bit about captain marvel because i don't know I may end up writing about it for the website. I'm not sure, but I, I did want to tell you because Graham, you were there when I purchased a large amount of, uh, I, I was purchased what could only be described as a pile. Mm-hmm. Captain mm-hmm. Marvel. Yeah. A pile of, well, it was, it was a very, first off, it was definitely a mega pile of Engelhart, you know, in that it was a lot of Engelhart's Dr. Strange run, which I had not read. And, uh, and a very big chunk of his run on Captain Marvel, which runs from, weirdly enough, is only from issue 35 to issue 46. So, but that's, but part of me is always like, I don't, you know, that's, 11 issues of Engelhart writing a book. That's kind of a big deal. Why hasn't this been collected and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and as I think you may have noticed uh, when I was talking about it on the, um, on Twitter, it, it starts off pretty goddamn amazingly because it's maybe the second issue in where Rick Jones ends up being in the negative zone for long periods of time as Captain Marvel flies to the moon. So, he basically turns around and drops acid that this fellow musician had given him, you know, and it, it's interesting because they can't talk about it. They can't call it acid. So it's like uh, talking, speaking of irony, I suppose, you know, the musician who gives it to Rick Jones is like, hey, here's some vitamin C. And it's in quotes like, you know, in case you ever need a little pick me up kind of thing. So it's only referred to as vitamin C in quotes, but (laughs) Rick Jones begins tripping out in the negative zone. And because he's his consciousness, he's bonded with Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel right in the period where he's supposed to be fighting the watcher on the moon, uh, because the lunatic Legion, uh, which is this, this group of uh, assassins who are trying to kill Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel, with the help of Hank Pym, is like, oh, lunatics, it's a pun, they're on the moon. Also, the living laser who attacked you and tried to kill you and Rick Jones, he's got like a big moon rock on his belt. So, you know, there's probably that. So they go to the moon, and of course... There's a moon thing happening. Yeah, there's a moon thing, get it? So they go up there, and he's like, oh, yeah. And and of course, one of the things that's that's great, is kind of great, is, is that... As we know from reading the Avengers, Englehart has laid down this entire history with the Kree and the the plant warriors, you know, that that end up training Mantis, and you know, she ends up marrying the plant. Uh, the whole the whole conflict between the plants and the Kree for you know who gets the 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 scroll version of the MacArthur Genius Grant. 
Um, the Kree get pretty pissed off about the whole thing. Anyway, all of which is to say, when Captain Marvel flies over the blue area of the moon, he's like, oh, right, that city, everyone knows the blue area. It's that city we tried to build to impress the scroll and then got our asses kicked and blah, 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 blah. So he shows up and is like, hey, the Watcher, so I was wondering if you could help me find this lunatic legion that's supposedly up here trying to kill me. And the Watcher's like, surprise, it's me. I'm trying to kill you. I'm going to try and kill you now. And then, Wait, of course, the Watcher? Yes. Yes. The Watcher. See? Yeah, this is so great. You didn't know this storyline. Yes. No. Yeah. Yeah, the Watcher tries to kill Captain Marvel. He is. It's like, I am the head of the Lunatic Legion. I, finally, I am going to kill you. And uh, and Captain Marvel's like, well, I know. Why? I'll fight you. Wait, why are my hands floating? Because, of course, he's now an acid. So so oh it's like God, the, the, so awesome. the worst of all situations for Captain Marvel, except in the next issue because he, I don't know, I think he passes out and the Watcher's like, I'm not going to kill you while you're unconscious. That'd be too good for you. Uh, Marvel wakes up the next issue. Oh no, what it is is, is that the acid, because this is an Englehart comic and God love him for it, the acid allows Rick Jones and Captain Marvel to essentially realize that they are one being, you know, in the, in the adorable lysergic acid, we're all one being kind of way, except because they're bonded, like, so what happens is Rick manages to control Captain Marvel's body while Captain Marvel's knocked out. Then he manages to wake him up. And then once he's awake, Captain Marvel, who has cosmic awareness before, in a very vaguely defined way under Starlin, other than like, ah, I sense something funky's going on, is now pretty much like, I understand everything and I can move so much faster and think so much more clearly, you know? So he basically becomes a better superhero as a result of Rick Jones doing acid, which is a delightful take on the whole, you know, God, God love Englehart. He's like, okay, someone's going to accidentally do a drug, but it's going to make them a better person deal with it. Uh, as for the watcher, what ends up happening is it becomes kind of a great once Captain Marvel like more or less confronts the watcher is like, you tried to kill me. And, and the watcher's like, yes, I did. I'm a very bad watcher. And basically the trial of the watcher happens where he gets whisked away to the watcher's homeworld, where a bunch of the other members of the watcher race put him on trial for repeatedly interfering uh, with humanity. Uh, and so it's oh, Steve Englehart. Yes, which is great. I mean, and it and it's very interesting because this is one of the ways in which, um, you know, I, I I think I talked about it on air. But one of the things that was interesting to me about reading the well, of course I did because it was one part of it was really seen when you and I were talking, looking at the Mark Grenwald edited issues of the Avengers, where it seemed like every other issue, you know, Roger Stern, more or less, I think at Mark Grenwald's, you know, bidding, or maybe they were both on the same page, were taking various bits of the Marvel universe kind of off the page they it's like like when they tried to destroy the savage land which lasted for like maybe all of about 6 months you know or like when mark grunwald in captain america has you know the mask run around and kill off all these second rate villains and heroes just to kind of you know basically make the marvel universe look more like 
you know, the real universe, make it seem a little less overflowing with so much craziness, which of course now is part of the appeal. But Englehart does, a, I think, a particularly graceful version of this in that he had, he uses this whole story to basically show you He's got like three pages where it's literally every time the watcher has like shown up, you know, up to now. And of course, it starts off with momentous occasions. And by the end, it's like, and remember that time that like Ben Grimm needed an oil change and you showed up and told him that there was a garage that was still open around the corner. Remember in Giant Size FF number two? And it's like, oh, right. He did do that. Wow, the, you are a bad watcher. And he more or less, there's this you whole thing a where bad watcher. you're a bad watcher. Captain Marvel ends up interfering in the trial of the watcher, sort of. I don't know. And, and more or less, the watcher's like, okay, I'll never do that again. I've learned my lesson. And, you know, for the most part, the watcher then goes on to be a less interfering character from, from that point on, as far as I can tell. It's an, it's a, it's a nifty little piece of, of retconning, you know, and they follow it up with, um, uh, essentially just two issues later, uh, there's Captain Marvel ends up back on Hala, I guess the home world of the Kree, Hala, Hala. And it turns out that the Supreme Intelligence <laughs> Is the one who has manipulated Captain Marvel's entire career up until that point. So that classic, like everything you know is wrong, slash there's been a, a mastermind behind the scenes who's been manipulating everything from the very first time is finally revealed here in this issue. And again, it's one of those classic, oh, it sort of makes a lot of sense. Because there is that, you know, why did the Supreme Intelligence join Rick Jones to Captain Marvel and blah, 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 blah. There's this whole thing that, that, that comes. Oh, by the way, so the Watcher was trying to kill Captain Marvel because when Captain Marvel got cosmic consciousness and was, um, made the protector of the universe, uh, Uatu was pissed off because he was, he wanted it to go to himself. And so he basically was jealous of Captain Marvel and tried to have him killed. And then was like, oh, okay. I'm a, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of great. Right. Sort of a great little bit of like, um, you know, actual personality there to Uatu. Similarly, the Supreme Intelligence is like, Captain Marvel, you're the most important part of my plan in that I've spent all this time joining you and Rick Jones together because there's this millennial flower that is going to be coming into bloom and essentially I do not want it to go to the human race and it probably will thanks to Rick Jones and Rick Jones's special powers that I refer to in the Kree scroll war. So I've joined you guys together because both of you are my two biggest enemies. I'm going to let you loosen the universe so that you can continue to evolve. And then I'm going to kill you. Um, which has a little bit of the Jim Starlin stuff going on over in Warlock, actually, weirdly enough, at the same time, not mean to spoil stuff for other people, but the Magus who is running around is basically like says to Adam Warlock, yeah, I want you to basically continue to do all the stuff that you're doing because, and I don't want to spoil it for people because it's one it's, of my favorite It's like a 40-year-old comic. Jeff. It is. It is. That's why I felt comfortable talking about all this other stuff. But um, but yeah, he basically, I want you to do all this stuff because in doing so, you'll be able to become me. 
similarly, it's, you know, in a less clear way, the supreme intelligence is like, you have to go have more adventures so that you're perfectly right so that I can destroy you. And it starts off with the, you know, the next phase two, that's like an issue, you know, 41, I think, or something like that is going to be this huge, even more mega cosmic arc. Well, Engelhart and Milgram like show nine different things happening on different planets. And is like, these are all interconnected and we're going to show you how well, it proceeds to basically fall apart, which is a fascinating read. And I couldn't understand what the fuck was going on until taking him at face value. If you go to steveenglehart.com, he's like, yeah, Al Milgram and I wanted to, to co-plot the book. And the same way that I had done with Frank Bruner on Doctor Strange. And uh, unfortunately, what happened was I moved to the West Coast. And unlike Doctor Strange, where Frank Bruner and I could meet every week for like 90 minutes and hash out ideas and get all excited, Milgram and I were trying to talk about all this stuff long distance over the phone. And, and things didn't quite come together. So basically, Al Milgram plotted the last five or six issues, and I just dialogued them. And let me tell you, I got to say, I read that explanation after I read the issues and I'm like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Because up to the point, it's very, it's very Englehartian in that it's like, oh, sure, there's some laughs or whatever, but it's very much, I'm, I'm taking these story, everyone else's storylines, even other storylines in the Marvel universe, and I'm building toward this more cosmic thing. And then the very next issue is like, and here's Captain Marvel on a planet that's a space Western and it's shoot out at the okay space corral with the stranger. And you're like, this is a fill in issue, right? And it's like, Nope, it's all by the same creators. I'm like, okay, but why doesn't it make any sense? Ah, we'll tell you next issue where, you know, where it's like Captain Marvel and Rick Jones who are now flying on a, on a cosmic space mule, are, you know, then involved in like fighting. God, I can't even remember what the fuck they end up fighting in like issue 43 or 44. But, but it all builds up to all this sort of, to the big final finale where the, the supreme intelligence is like, finally, you've fallen right into my hands. Now it's time to beat the crap out of both of you. And that issue is written by, yes, you guessed it, Chris Claremont. After being, of course it is. So once again, we have one of those situations where it's like, I bought all these issues, read them. The first half is prime Engelhart. The second half is like something is noticeably off and things aren't quite making sense. And they keep promising that it's all going to make sense in the end. And then when the final issue shows up, Engelhart is gone, although he supposedly has plotted the story. And it's Chris Claremont who's like, Okay, so there's a cosmic softball game between the Supreme Intelligence, Captain Marvel, and Rick Jones, and the fate of the world is hanging on it. So, um, Whereas that does sound great. To be fair, that doesn't happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, but still, a cosmic <laughs> softball game between those three? <laughs> that would be kind of great. I got to admit, it's quite, No, it's got to be a cosmic softball team between Rick Jones's team right. and Supreme Intelligence's team, and Marvel's got to be acting as umpire. Uh, well, uh, see, I think I think what would happen because the way the rest of the issues are going, and it is kind of interesting. Once Rick Jones and Captain Marvel get split by the Supreme Intelligence, each of them end up with one Nega band, 
And do they have one, to keep playing in it? N- no, because they coexist. What happens is that at first it seems like this amazing thing because they're like, oh, thank God we're finally both free of one another. But what happens is Rick Jones, through using the Nega Band, basically becomes super powered. And then as each issue goes by, he- Jeff? Did you just put yourself on mute? For the love of God. I hate this stupid headset. It was the, it was the best timing as well. He went, and then as time goes by, click. You're like, ah. And I then. Like, I honestly thought it was dramatic pause. And yes. And I was like, you fucker. <laughs> no. No, no, it's the Microsoft Life Chat 3000 or whatever this fucking thing is that, ugh. Anyway, uh, so Rick, essentially what happens is Rick Jones, after being, and again, this is something that you know Englehart had sort of plotted out before things went awry, is Rick Jones goes from being the sidekick to being the most important person in the relationship. He understands what to do with the Nega band. Captain Marvel realizes that it's Rick Jones that the Supreme Intelligence has been manipulating all this stuff toward, not Marvel himself. And so he has to deal with his own sort of hurt feelings of pride. And Rick Jones basically has a, yeah, look at me, look what I can do kind of moment. So what I was going to say is it would very, it would very much be in keeping with the way the series was going is it's the Supreme Intelligence's team versus Rick Jones's team. And Captain Marvel has to be on the team, but he doesn't know how to play baseball. And so he, you know, Rick Jones is like, Sorry, CM, I'm going to have to bench you. And, and, you know, Captain Marvel being like, what? This is impossible. You know, and then through some sort of trick of cosmic awareness, he learns someone, some space entity, mysterious space entity teaches him how to play softball and they can win. But, um, all of the sense great. You know, I got to say, as we're mapping it out, I'm like, oh, right. Cause Rick Jones is able to manifest those other, uh, right? People from the Kree Scroll War, so it could. So he could manifest an entire team, Jeff. Yeah, he totally could. And, but would it be superheroes? Or the thing that would be great is if you could somehow do it in such a way that you were spoofing the movie Field of Dreams at the same time you were telling this epic. Um, that would be the best, you know? Because you have Shoeless Joe step out of the cosmic cornfield or whatever. Cosmic cornfield. I'm telling you, this story really does get like, welcome it's to right fan itself. fiction corner, <laughs> whatnots, where once again, Graham and Jeff write the classics the way they should have been written. <laughs> Insane. First time around. Yeah, the first time around. So, so Captain Marvel, it kind of, it, it starts off amazing and then just goes off the rails, kind of ends with a, a very Chris Claremont-esque whimper. And, I went from, cause like around issue 40 or 41, I was like, oh, god damn it, why didn't I buy like the next four or five issues of, cause this is the amazing thing is Chris Claremont fills in and in the letter pages, he's like, boy, wait till I show you what I'm going to do with Captain Marvel. I've got so many plans. I'm going to turn this into the premier Captain Marvel cosmic powered superhero book. And of course, I think Scott Edelman's on like the issue after that. Like, I, I don't even know if Chris Claremont actually <laughs> does another issue after promising that he's going to be it. So it'll be kind of interesting to turn out, see how it, see, see what happens. So now you have new back issues to search for is what you're saying. I'm saying that actually I feel like I, <laughs> I'm like kind of like, ooh, 
like half of these, even at a dollar a pop or 75 cents a pop, were not the miracle investment that I thought they were. So <laughs> I think that maybe I got off exceedingly well by not getting the Scott Edelman issues as well. Sorry, Scott Edelman. Um, you know. I, whereas I was thinking price. I should go back to the store and see if they have any more issues. It, believe me, they do. If it makes you feel better, if you yeah, want to. A, they might have sold by then because that was like a month and a half ago. And B, they've probably priced them up because you kind of got them cheaper than they should have been. Uh, we're not sure. It is a question, honestly. God bless I, that I am, incredibly I am pretty nice sure. Guy. Yeah, you, you got you, the price you sure. got them because they hadn't actually priced them yet. And he guessed. That is true. He did guess. But then that being said, he and I were both so bad at math that he gave them to me. He was going to give them to me for the same prices as the prices in your bins that you were looking for. And then he and I calculated the math wrong. So it was. Yeah. But still. No, like, no. I agree. Got them for like $1.09 an issue. Yeah. And I'm saying they might have been worth more. They might have been. They might have been. Although it's that store is amazing. I have to say, what do you remember the name of it? It's it's called Cloud Nine. Cloud Nine. Cloud Nine, Nine Comics. People, if you want an amazing comic book experience like that, is that that the, the if twenty minutes Portland, we spent in that store? Yeah, if you're in Portland, Oregon, Oregon yeah, it is at uh, Southeast Twenty Sixth and Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's called Cloud Nine Comics. Yeah, really interesting little neighborhood there. I have to say that was that was a great little conglomeration of those four corners. There was something interesting happening on pretty much every block there. So yeah, just like the next block up, you've got the food carts, and then, yeah, so it's it's a good place. Yeah. Oh man, the food carts! I'm so hungry all of a sudden. So, <laughs> Graham McMillan, what else should we talk about? Since I, is, are there other I, books? I feel want... we're, we're vaguely careering towards the end of the podcast. To be perfectly honest with you, Jeff. Oh, I, I, I think you're right. Wrong. We've been talking for an hour and three quarters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if we get into anything else now, it'll, it'll take us off for even longer. Uh, I'm trying to think what we could talk about briefly. Star Wars. Uh, I got. You've got to be so excited to talk about Star Wars. Oh yeah, because I'm I'm so excited to talk about Star Wars. I it's not like I've been reading about Star Wars all fucking week. <laughs> Although you know what's really funny? I really have no joke been writing about Star Wars all week. Yes. Um, and so we're recording this on Thursday, and it's like since Monday because it was Monday night the trailer dropped, right? Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, I got more sick of Back to the Future in one day oh, than I yeah. still am. Of mm-hmm. Star Wars right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Day, I yeah. I was. I was done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not? Was that just me? Oh like, no! I found uh, something exhausting about Back to the Future Day. I, you know, honestly, for me, it was kind of. Um, I sort of felt like Back to the Future Day was the Cyber Monday to Star Wars Black Friday a little bit. For me, I just kind of had that weird. I mean, I barely paid attention to any of the stuff. In fact, I think I think I didn't realize the trailer had dropped until you mentioned it in, in an email to me that morning. I was like, "Oh, sh- oh, right." And then when Back to the Future Day hit, I mean, it was clear that they had so much stuff into it. I just, I was never, I never even saw Back to the Future two or three, and neither had Edie. So. <laughs> You know what's very funny? I realized during all this run up to Back to the Future Day, I still haven't seen three. Oh, really? And I saw three of them. Wow. 
Wow. Uh, because they, I got sent a, a box set when they put the, not the, the current Blu-rays out, but the Blu-rays out like five or six years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, and I watched, like, I've seen two a bunch of times. I even watched two again last night. Huh. Um, but <laughs> I've, I've never seen three. I've never seen three. Interesting. Which says obviously a lot about how much I like two. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, for myself, I remember seeing Back to the Future. It might have been one of those movies that I saw in the theater. I want to say I saw it in the theater twice, but maybe that's not the case. But I remember thinking that Back to the Future, on the one hand, Back to the Future is this sort of perfectly, like in terms of the craft of Back to the Future, I think it's kind of perfect um, in in how it's put yeah, together. It really is. It's you know, so well. Yeah, it's it really is. It's it's ridiculously well constructed, and and in some ways it almost, which is kind of what the director Robert Zemeckis is all about, it almost out-Spielberg Steven Spielberg, at least at that period of time during the 80s where Spielberg is moving into Amblin Entertainment and there's a lot more sort of like, hey, it's Clever Kids Day, you know? Um, but I also have to say, for me, there was something that was... Let's just say that, that the, I feel that the true sequel to Back to the Future is Forrest Gump. So for me, Back to the Future 2, Back to the Future 3, like I was kind of like, oh, I should see him. I should sort of check him out. But, but Back to the Future, again, seeing it twice, I kind of had like a weird taste in the back of my mouth, you know, the first time I, the first and second time I saw those movies. Cause on the one hand, it was that point where, again, the craft, I was like, oh my god, this is amazing. And then I saw it again, and, and the craft is amazing. But I walked out being like, Back to the Future is, like Forrest Gump, is a weird Republican apology, uh, apologia slash celebration wrapped in a sort of smart-ass, oh, we're kind of making fun of that, but not really kind of way. You know, like there's, there's, back, back to, this is why I'm now like, oh, you should watch Back to the Future 2, mm-hmm. uh, where in the main villain is Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And thank God they've actually come forward and said, yes, it's literally Donald Trump. That's funny. Um, and the problem with Back to the Future trilogy is two peaks. Two does what three should do mm-hmm. and leaves three nowhere to go because you know what happens in two, right? Uh, no, actually. I mean, I've got a general sense so, of it. Yeah. So Back to the Future 2 starts with them going into the future to save Marty's kids. That's right. In the future, uh, Marty from 1985 buys a sports almanac with all the sporting results from 1950 through 2000 with mm-hmm. the idea that he's then going to go back in time and just make himself rich. Right. He's talked out of doing so by Doc Brown. Mm-hmm. What happens unbeknownst to them is Biff from the future, the mm-hmm. 2015 Biff, hears this, steals the time machine and the almanac, goes back to 1955, gives Biff from 1955 the almanac, and then comes back to the future. Therefore, when Marty and Doc go back to 1985, it's an alternate future, or it's yes. an alternate present, right? where Biff is Donald Trump. Uh. And this I now love. Like, Biff, Biff was written to be a Trump parody mm-hmm. of Trump in the 1980s. That's cool. So you have, like, 
Biff Hotel and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they realize the timeline is incredibly fucked, and so they then have to go back to 1955 to fix it. But in doing so, re-enter the first film. Right, which I thought was a great idea. Like, it's hearing idea about it. happened in the third one. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm, after that, mm-hmm. you wouldn't know where to go. Right. When you've literally gone back into the first film and interacted with the first film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you, you can't, like, the, then after that, the third one is, oh, and then it's the Wild West. Right. Like, Which is just first, like, what? You do the Wild West first, mm-hmm. and then you do the, you know, interacting with yourself again. Yeah. Um, also, what's fascinating is because I, I think the first one really is genuinely amazingly constructed. Yes, the second and third were obviously written together because they were shot back to back. That's right. But because there's that break, you can see everything being laid in too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have characters say things like, "Oh, I always wanted to go back to 1885." <laughs> yeah. Or. Biff's, you know, lineage starts in 1885, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it really jars. Yeah, because you're like, this, this, where's this coming from? This, this, you know, what's going on here? And it sticks in your head in the wrong way. Well, and it it is one of those things that I think is is fascinating is uh, uh, talking about it with with Edie. Like a lot of people think of Back to the Future two and three because I think they were the first sequels that were filmed back to back. Like, you know, kind of as a, oh yeah, that's, that's a thing that people do and Back to the Future sort of pioneered that. I'm like, Back to the Future kind of killed it. Cause as I recall, two and three were not as big a hits as the studios thought that it would be. And one of the things that they blamed it on was that shooting them back to back meant less development time to get the scripts worked out. And I'm sort of fascinated by how that ends up happening again with the Matrix movies and the movies. Oh, but Back to that... the Future didn't do it first. They did the uh, the British uh, Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers. Oh yeah, or oh, yeah, I guess that's true. Or, or something like that. Were shot back to back as well. And didn't Superman shoot some of the footage for Superman Two at the same time? Oh as yeah, Superman? there was a huge chunk. Yeah, I think Superman Two has a big chunk of stuff that was originally shot for the original Superman. But that was when they were planning on making it just one ridiculous mega movie. I think. Although yeah. I think you're right about the Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers. I had forgotten about that. So, um, but but it, it's it's really. Oh, but before you get to this point, I did want to include, because this does work with the Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers, is the back-to-back sequel making tends to only work when it's based on books, like with The Lord of the Rings or Hunger Games. or you know what's coming. Yeah. Well, and the kinks are all kind of worked out. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You can't legitimately plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's true. And and really, as bad as the Back to the Future sequels are... Two and I presume three because I've never seen three. I think The Matrix is much worse. Than the oh Matrix yeah, is. like okay. The Matrix is one of those films where the first one is, even though it's dated horrifically, like mm-hmm. a good film, and then the sequels are just nightmares. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it that is that is. I haven't seen Back to the Future two and three, but like The Matrix two and three are to me amazing. Like it is remarkable that The Matrix had anything like any kind of following afterwards. And I mean, it barely does, you know, but wow, those movies were... It really did manage to like really hit the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It it was people walked away from that being like, okay, I was wrong. <laughs> and 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 uh, rightly so cuz yeah, 2 and 3 were terrible and fascinating to the extent to which they were trying to do so many things. It really to me I think like it's weird how much the Matrix 2 and 3 end up being almost an argument for the kind of weird horrific Hollywood limbo of of uh script development because scripts actually do get worked on and some things do I mean sure things can be over finessed or you end up with you know a crazy producer insisting that there's a giant spider in it and then you get wild wild west or whatever but you know a lot of times it it is it gets passed to many hands and people are like well but why this or what happens about that or this is not especially subtle and you end up with you end up with something that when it is done, you know, that can be really impressively crafted to the point of almost being sublime. And if you don't do that, you get like, man, like, you know, uh, Graham, you, you're, I don't know if you're still doing it, but you're, you're a baking man. You must have made some, baked something where it didn't come out right and it was like kind of globby and half baked <laughs> in the middle and just, you oh, know, yes. burnt on the sides and, and that's that's what those Matrix movies are, you know? They just are not they fucked it up and they baked it wrong and and then and then they had were like, Well, it's gotta go on the market and so oh the faces of everyone eating such horribly baked food. <sighs> delightful. Just delightful. <laughs> I like how we actually were like, let's talk about Star Wars. Oh, we totally didn't. I, I it's funny though because this is something that concerns me about the new Star Wars series. Mm-hmm. That they're doing a movie a year. Yeah. It's just, man, it, there's, there's a potential for disaster. There is. It is high. I forgot that it was, but is it, is it actually the Star Wars movie a year? Like, it's, it's Star it's Wars not... episode, no, it's like The Force Awakens, which is episode seven, right. 2015. Yeah. Then it's the Rogue One in 2016. Mm-hmm. Then it's episode eight in 2017. Then it's epis- then it's the um, Han Solo film in 2018. Right. Then it's episode nine in 2019. Eh, that almost works. I mean, part of me is like, you should. They should jam another side character, bonus character in there. Because yeah, I agree with you. It's a little. Although again. I think I only knew this from looking, I think, either at you on Twitter or Tumblr. The rumors are high that the Star Wars material, these movies may also be working on uh, building from a base of more previously established material than one might have thought, right? Uh, yeah. There, well, who knows? There is, they're definitely hinting very strongly that they're uh, – the big rumor is – Luke is not in the trailers or in the poster because he's a bad guy and that it's being kept back is the big reveal. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, they're definitely looking at uh, Dark Empire, the 19... shit, 89? 90? Uh, mm-hmm. Comic book as uh, source material mm-hmm. because the, that, that's essentially the plot of that comic uh, that, that Luke goes evil. Mm-hmm. Uh We'll see. There, there's definitely ways that you could draw that back into the new canon. I don't know. I mean, I, one of the things I actually wrote about this this week on the main site, uh, the Greg Rucker written prequel comic from yes, Marvel. Yes, right. Which 
congratulations, Marvel, on showing that release schedules mean nothing to you guys anymore. <laughs> Uh, for those paying attention at home, that would be the comic which the first issue came out uh, in mid-September, and then nothing happened until the second issue came out the first week of October, and then it was weekly. <gasps> wow. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Because that makes sense. Right? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. I, I, Dylan Todd, who does write about Star Wars comics for Comics Alliance... Mm-hmm. I said today, I've not written about Star Wars comics for three weeks, and I've got seven to catch up on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, which, you know, um, which again is to me one of those ideas of, of Marvel being, as you've pointed out, Star Wars is carrying an incredible part of Marvel's market share right now. Yeah. And, it, and weirdly, they kept all of their Star Wars books until the weeks of New York Comic Con. Mm. All of them. Hmm. I mean, that's, I understand the, it's the first week of the third quarter. Yeah. Part of it. But nonetheless, surely you don't release them all in the same week. Yeah. 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 These are all $4 books. Yeah. Those, those like are. At some point, they are going to start eating into each other. Yes. Because there are four, there's five, there's five of them. They release five $4 books in the same week. Yeah. Because there's now five Star Wars titles as well, which would be shit. Wow. Right? Yeah. Because there's Star Wars, there's Darth Vader, there's the Lando miniseries, there's the Kanan series, mm-hmm. uh, and there's Shattered Empire, and uh, there's another one. First issue of Chewbacca. Chewbacca, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, crazy. Well, I mean, and to me, that's, I, I kind of wonder if once they looked at their, their like, Oh, these books are, these Secret Wars books are holding, are being held back, or even our Secret Wars numbers are doing worse. It's like, okay, let's, let's just, let's basically, let's dump product in the market in time to be able to, to put it on some balance sheet or other. So. Yeah, I don't know. But what I was going to say is, um, the, so I've now read Shattered Empire series. Which mm-hmm. is the four four comic books and Aftermath, the the prose novel that's set in the same time period. Both of which are Journey to Star Wars: The Force Awakens books, i.e., setting up pieces of the mythology that may lead into the film. Right, right. The book Aftermath tells a story and deals with the political fallout of Return of the Jedi, which in turn, it's the first book in a trilogy, will lead to. The, the status quo of Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. Fine. Shattered Empire does not have anything like that space and literally feels like someone gave Greg Rucka a, you have to work these plots into your story. I don't care how you do it. Mm-hmm. Dick died. Then, after he'd done a pass, said, no, 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 you've got to change it. <sighs> right. Right. Uh, and it's the most fragmented thing Rucka has ever written. Yikes! There is no through line in that miniseries mm-hmm. at all, um, and also there's no consistent rhythm. Mm-hmm. So it's a four issue series. Uh, the f- what strikes me is arguably the most important piece of mythology that has to get in place for the film mm-hmm. comes out of nowhere in the fourth issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, you have a kind of two issue or one and a half issue Princess Leia story mm-hmm. 
and half an issue of a Han Solo story, and <laughs> an issue of like just random shit. Wow, it is amazingly poorly done. Man, I tell you, uh, I, but really just made me think. This was done really quickly, <laughs> mm-hmm. and at some point there were editorial notes. Right, right. There were notes that changed things. Let me ask I, for myself. I have to say because I I was thinking about this in part upon reading your review of Rucka's miniseries. Is part of me is like the power for the trailer, such the full trailer, such as it was, the the story that was hinted at had to me kind of the hook of, how do I put it? Like almost the less you know about the new status quo, it would seem like the more satisfying the movie would be, you know? But that appears to not be how the Lucas Disney Titan is marketing it, which it seems to be the idea of like we are – putting all these pieces in place to whet your appetite for the movie and also have you give us money. But it seems to me like there's this very strange, um, like looking at the trailer, I was like, Oh man, like even after watching the trailer, part of me was like, I probably shouldn't watch that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think the, the colder, it was one of those experiences where it's like, Oh, there's going to be a lot more of this movie is based around you thought X, but it's really Y kind of that made me be yeah. like, oh, I don't, I don't really want to, maybe I shouldn't have even seen this trailer. Well, you know? okay. But having, having read Aftermath and Shattered Empire, mm-hmm. there is nothing in there that is concrete point, conc- concretely pointing towards a plot. Sure. There are just literally lots of things where it's like, oh, maybe this. What what you really take away from those two things taken in tandem is, hey kids, you know what you thought Return of the Jedi was the end of the Star Wars? Right. It's not. Right. The Empire not only didn't go away, they won. Hmm. And neither uh, Aftermath or Shattered Empire definitively says they won, mm-hmm. but they do fairly definitively say the the death of the emperor means nothing in the grand scheme of things. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and the last issue of Shattered Empire actually has a character say that there's no end to the hostilities in sight. Mm. So at best it's a stalemate, i.e. back where we were before. Huh. Uh, well so yeah. yeah. Right. Um yeah, it it'll it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to to I think see how that plays out, but I do have that. So you're basically if nothing else, you don't feel that you're covering. I don't feel spoiled, all, yeah, you don't feel spoiled. I guess that, that, no, that no. what you're what you've I, read I or what like you've seen. Make, okay. I feel like I can make a lot of guesses, mm-hmm. but I feel that it is very, very. I think the way they're they're building this is really smart because the trailers are very clearly. Hey, you guys, do you remember Star Wars? You loved Star Wars. This is Star Wars, mm-hmm. and I think the. The novels and the comics are, we know you love Star Wars, so here's a lot of hints that you can speculate about. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we know you're speculating. Mm-hmm. Like, you're a Star Wars fan. You've just paid money for a Star Wars comic. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's no? tr- one so of the things. Yeah. Here's something you can speculate about. Yeah. 
I, 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 I wonder the extent to which J.J. Abrams got this, and to an extent the Star Wars, uh, the Star Trek gig, um, you know, because of course he did amazing stellar work on on that pilot of Lost or whatever. But a lot of it really does seem like it's the amazing stellar work on Mission Impossible. That's why he got the Star Trek gig. Well. His stellar lost pilot led to his stellar Mission Impossible, you know, piece that led to, but each one of those pieces, but I really, looking back on it, how much the marketing for something like Cloverfield, which really seemed to actively play with people's ability to speculate about what it was, what was happening, their, their, the way they embraced and understood viral marketing campaigns based, like you said, on this idea of like, Oh, okay, here's some, here are, we know the images to play with. We're going to give you them and, and hint at something else and let you guys go hog wild, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that that's very much, uh, in a weird way, become Abrams brand Mm -hmm. in, 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 Part because of Cloverfield and part because of Lost, which wasn't even really his thing, but mm-hmm. he really got like he benefited a lot from Lost. Oh, I'm hugely, like, yeah, being mm-hmm. what it was, and it became the it's the mystery box man. Exactly. Like at exactly. some point, he became it's JJ Abrams, keeper of mysteries, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, and he's played into that in the worst ways, like mm-hmm. uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, where everyone's like, oh. Benson Cumberbatch is playing Cad, and he's like, or is he? <laughs> Which yeah. only works when the answer isn't, oh, he is. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because you know I mean? yeah. otherwise, you just lied. Yes. Yeah, no, in fact, that is the Star Trek Into Darkness is, shows the, yeah, once someone gets far enough ahead of you, you're, you can really be in trouble. And that was, oh, God, that was so clearly the case with that. Um, and, and, of course, I think they would have, uh, been forgiven if they had managed not to make an unbelievably shitty movie. I am sorry. That second Star Trek film was. Oh, I, you know, I've got to tell you though, I watched it again, mm-hmm. which I didn't expect to do, but it was on Netflix or Hulu, whatever is on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Kate hadn't seen it. Mm. And Kate really enjoyed the first one. I really enjoyed the first one as well. Yeah. Uh, and she was like, Oh, let's watch it. And I was like, Oh, it's, Oh, it's terrible. Oh man. It's not any goods. <laughs> When you go into and you've been disappointed, it holds up a lot better. I mean, it still has astounding plot holes at the end. I mean, right. genuinely, do you guys realize you've just solved death plot holes at the end? <laughs> yes. Um, but but when you know that, mm-hmm. it allows you to enjoy what is good about it, and a lot more is good than you remember. When you, when you when you kind of know you're going to have a bad taste in your mouth, I guess. Right. It's kind of really surprising how much you're like, oh, actually, it's 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 well made fluff, and ultimately, I think that's what like that's okay with me. Mm. I want to believe you, you know, because you clearly sat down, watched it recently, had the same horrible first experience. But oh, what? I hated it! I hated it! I felt personally betrayed by Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah, Star Trek Into Darkness. For me, so much of it was that that they. The first half of the movie is is such really bad sequelitis, like really, really bad sequelitis in terms of not really 
like sort of redoing a lot of what they already did in yes. the first movie. <laughs> Kirk, will you ever get over your father? I thought he did that last film. Shut up. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, everyone, I'm going to give him the same pep talk again last time. Yeah, I just, I'm not going to be, I just don't think that I can really forgive it for that. I mean, there's all the other stuff where I feel like the, the whole marketing, non-marketing, we lied to you. We're redoing the second movie, but we're not. Okay, we are, but don't worry. We did it much, much worse. You know, even yeah, cutting – We're not only redoing the second movie. We're actually referencing it on a number of occasions. Yeah. We're going to remind you that you like this other movie better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're not going to let you forget about it. Like a, a number of things that I, I know that they thought would work, but just the amount of uh, – yeah, no, the, it, it would be hard for me, Graham, because the, the, just the fact that the first 45 I, I minutes I'm, of that addressing... movie is so terrible. I'm addressing the agnostics in the audience then. Ah, I see. Okay. The people who are like, huh, I wonder what it's like to watch it again. It's better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, but I've, do you never get that? Like, I really want to see Superman, uh, not Superman Returns, uh, Man of Steel again. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and honestly, I'm kind of curious to see Green Lantern again. Sure. I get that. It, it, I, it, I, I have the strange feeling I think I'll dislike Green Lantern more. Mm-hmm. But I think I like Man of Steel more. Mm. Yeah, I I don't know. Maybe I, I it's possible. I, I because I think there are. Hmm, how do I put it? One of the things that you know uh, is, <laughs> as you know from talking mo- movies about me uh, with me recently, Graham. Hint, hint. Uh, is that people are perfectly capable of divide taking movies and dividing them up and either finding bits that they you know the exact bits that other people hate uh, turns out that some people love or um, weirdly enough that some people will love a part of a terrible movie. Like it's, it'll be like, Oh, but this is such a good bit or that's such a great bit. So it, mm-hmm. it is perfectly possible that there are bits and pieces of Star Trek into darkness or, or man of steel, man of steel has some bits that I would really like to re-see again because I kind of liked them as I was putting up with the rest of the whole horrible bullshit that was all the other parts of the movie, I guess. <laughs> but I, so, and I have to say for myself, I, I came, I don't remember where I was, but I was in a place where I maybe, you know, I was at someone's house where they had a TV and they were flipping channels and they came across Green Lantern and I, I cringed and i didn't even really like i saw that movie in the theater with my friend mojo and i was like okay that was kind of shit but i didn't think that it wasn't i wasn't really like oh that was so goddamn horrible i was just like eh, it was boring and it was bland and it was a generic product that stunk but when they reflipped it admittedly part of that is having peter sarsgaard like having him like scream like a baby man, like for huge sections of the movie, they turned to that section and I was just like, Oh God, please stop. Stop. Like this really is what the fuck were you people thinking? But also just that, like it was, it, it's scaldingly unpleasant. So I'd be curious to see. <laughs> see that I, that's just, I, I, I think that I was uh, much more lenient on it than I would be now. Mm-hmm. It's like I told you when I watched Avengers, rewatched Avengers for the first time. I was like, "Oh, this is actually a much worse film <laughs> than I thought it was." Like I was, went from Avengers is pretty good to actually Avengers is terrible. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, it's the point where, like, I know I can't watch Aven- uh, Avengers 2. I can't oh, yeah. see it again. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. I know that I, like, as much as I was like, Avengers is really, really badly paced when you, once you've seen it. Mm-hmm. Like, when you take away the, I wonder what's happening next, Avengers falls apart. Right. Like, Avengers 2 fell apart even before then. Yeah, I I remember as someone who was like, yeah, I liked Avengers Age of Ultron. It was okay. I suspect if I see it now, I'd be like, oh, what the fuck? Because I remember having that thing of like, no, it was okay. It was perfectly fine. It was great. It was no problem. And then it was like we had like six opportunities to walk into a movie theater, and I was just like, no, I don't want. I don't. I don't want to see any movies. I never want to see any movies. I know, exactly. I'm done like, with movies. No, yeah. no more movies. No more movies. You know, Avengers Age of Ultron was apparently such a good film that I can't even look at a movie theater without shuddering. So it was fine, obviously. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, where's the opposite for me? I remember seeing Avengers being like, huh, I don't, um, I didn't think that was a good movie at all. And yet I feel satisfied or content like it was that weird like i don't know why i'm feeling this like i don't understand what happened there so i don't know part of me is like i didn't think avengers was a good movie when i watched it and enjoyed it so part of me is like oh i'll watch it the next time and i'll think it's even worse and i'll probably enjoy it more somehow so but i don't think that's going to happen with avengers because (laughs) it turns out that avengers has has some Appalling pacing. <laughs> As a part in the middle of it, you're just like, will this ever fucking end? I know, I know there's a fight coming up. When's the fight? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'll take, I'll take your word for it. I'll take your word for it. Like, I just, I'll, I'll, I, like, I may end up re-seeing it. It's gotta be, for a while there, it was on every goddamn streaming network. Is it still, is it still streaming on stuff or no? I want to say it's gone. I think it's, I think it is. I think it's disappeared. But for a while, it was kind of yeah. I don't know. There's there's rumors that um for December Disney's going to add a bunch of stuff to Netflix again because the big rumors they're adding all the Star Wars films. Oh, to Netflix! Woo! Yeah. Wow. That would uh, be well, as promo for Force sure. Awakens. Exactly. Which I have to say, I'll totally watch the prequels again if they're on Netflix. Yeah, I the prequels. Mm, yeah. Ooh. I don't know. I don't know. I remember uh, the third one being okay. I remember the first one being terrible. The first one was terrible, except for, again, that classic like few bits that I like. Like I keep thinking back. I was like, man, I really want to see that bit where um, – because I, you know, I was like, eh, George Lucas. But that, that final fight with like Darth Maul and uh, Anakin and uh, Qigong – Trotsky or whatever his name is, the where there's like we, we call him the Anisans. <laughs> yeah, basically, it's it, you know where it's basically like yeah, he's fighting Obi Wan Kenobi and Taken, and because uh, I said, oh man, Oof. anyway, that's another story. Uh, the scenes there's no music for a good chunk of the fight, and there's that scene where they get separated by the opening closing doors, and you just have Darth Maul pacing around. Like a tiger, basically, while Keegan like sits there and meditates or whatever. So good, so good. I love that one moment. Like the rest of the movie is terrible, but that scene of him angrily pacing and looking at him and pacing and waiting and just just so impatient to get to the fighting and the rending and stuff. I was, was such a good little moment that George. I was like, oh my god, George Lucas remembered what it was like to direct for a second. Oh my god. 
It's amazing. Only for a second, though. It kind of it was that. Well, I'm no, sure in someone only yeah. for a second. Yeah, yeah. So, but no, I I mean I saw all those I saw all those movies, and actually, Attack of the Clones is the second one, and weirdly enough, that's my favorite, despite some of it having some of the all time most terrible scenes of ever. It's probably still my my favorite of the three. Really? Yeah. It's going to sound. I, but again, I'd be super. That's why I'd be super curious to see this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I know because there is that thing. Of, I don't know. It's just. But part of me is already like, I'm like, God damn it! I've wasted enough of my time on Star Wars. Says the guy still buying the Marvel Monthly comic, but only one out How of the possible that? six. Uh, I'm behind. I'm honestly behind. I think I think they're at issue eleven now or issue ten, and I think I I think the last issue that I read was eight or nine. Like I'm starting. It was okay. Like Stuart Eminence's work doesn't quite work for me on Star Wars. Of course, everyone's like it's great, it's lovely, and he can draw everything. But there was, but it's it's a little. I don't know. Uh, so anyway, I'm still. Ask me next time we we talk, and I'll probably have caught up on my my issues, and I'll be like, oh yeah, it's fine. But um, the the first the first arc by Aaron and Cassidy, which really was, I mean, it was two separate sets of stories or whatever, was like, okay, we're giving Jeff everything he wants in a Star Wars comic, and he also the way he wants it drawn, which weirdly I was like, I didn't even know that was John Cassidy, and then the second stuff is like. Aaron, Aaron still has the, the charm down, but there's something about Stuart Eminem that changes the work and kind of makes me feel like this should be better than it is. Um, and in a weird, like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to see if I, I still I'm have I'm very, very interested in that because I have to admit, because I'm reading on Unlimited, mm-hmm. uh, Cassidy's art is, is, killing my interest in that book. I can see it. I can see it. I think a lot of people were like, it's terrible, it's hacked out, it's not good, and I'm like, not, it's somehow, it just totally works for me. Kind of that weird, like, his, he gets the likenesses without having it feeling like overly photo referenced in Which his, is what I actually like about Eminent stuff from what I've seen of it. Yeah. Like Eminent stuff actually reads like a comic, whereas for me, Cassidy stuff looks too photo referenced. And, and, yeah, and yet there's something weird to me where I'm like, no, but that's the way – again, part of me was like, you know, A, this is the way I wanted the Star Wars comic to look as a kid and it never worked right because it was it was drawn by some hack like Howard Chaikin, you know, that kind of weird bullshit. Um, you know, just – I got to admit, it's definitely that first six years of Star Wars was kind of a weird like me being like, huh – Okay, apparently I'm a way more superficial Star Wars fan than I thought I would be. But once you get into Eminem drawing it and it looking like a comic book and a drawn organic thing, there's a way in which my interest drops off. Like, that is weird. Because then we start getting into the realm of like, oh, it's just a Star Wars comic book at that point. And I've I read a lot of Star Wars comics. And to me, there's that whole thing of a Star Wars comic doesn't I don't know. It's just it's just weird. It's just it brings back into that thing of like back when Dark Horse had the license or even you know, even before that, back when Marvel, like like, you know, you're you're a huge fan of when Simonson's doing it. And I mm-hmm. totally get that, but yet part of me is kind of like 
I don't know. It's weird. It's this really weird, superficial, almost petulant child thing of like, no, but I don't want Star Wars the comic to look like Star Wars the comic. I've already had Star Wars the comic. What I liked about those first six issues was it almost felt like Star Wars the movie, not Star Wars the comic. And that's, isn't that weird? And which is stupid. You know, I, I honestly can say that out loud is like, I think that's kind of, it is what it is, but I'm sort of appalled by that because I think it's quite possible by the time you get to the imminent issues, they're going to work for you so much better than the first five or six issues did. And, and yet, and so we're, it's just going to be one of those weird chasms, you know, where it's like, mm -hmm. didn't work for me, worked amazingly well for Graham. So, and vice versa. And on that note. Indeed. Uh, one of the things that I did want to say, Graham, before you launched into your closing comments is uh, I wanted to give our thanks to the crew over at American Ninth Art Studios for their support of this podcast, as well as special thanks to the Empress Aud uh, Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. I should try that again. <laughs> so a special thanks to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, as well as all of our fine supporters on Patreon who make all this possible. I know we normally say that at the end, but I realized uh, that I wanted to get in the special thanks to our, our special thank you people um, because uh, because they're awesome and, uh, and, and worth mentioning before and after Graham uh, does a fabulous job of letting everyone know um, where we are and what we do. Hi, we're on the internet and what we do, you've just listened to us do it. We talk about our comic books and other pop cultural things. <laughs> you can find us on the internet. Uh, we're on waitwhatpodcasts.com where you'll find show notes for the podcast and also written posts. We did a round table, uh, Jeff, myself and Matt Terrell last yes. week or as you were listening to this two weeks ago. Um, if you don't normally check out the website, if you don't normally check out the written posts that we do, I really would say go to waitwhatpodcast.com and look back for the roundtable because it's as close to a written version of the podcast as I think you'll get. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the three of us talking about uh, Paper Girls, number one, Doctor Strange, number one, Batman and Robin, number one, and Survivor's Club, number one. Yeah, uh, And also first issues in general. Uh, mm -hmm. It is, as you'd expect from the podcast, amazingly freewheeling and getting off topic. <laughs> but because of that, it's it's kind of fun. I really enjoy doing it, and I hopefully we'll do more in future. Yeah. We'll see. Um, there's also waitwhatpod.tumblr.com, a Tumblr that is sporadically updated with uh, random things, both from Jeff and myself, that we find on the comics internet and think are worth flagging. Yes. Uh, we are on Twitter, at waitwhatpodcast. Jeff is on Twitter solo, at lazybassid, L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I'm on uh, Twitter solo as at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. -E -E I'll say that again because I breathed at the wrong time. Yes. As G-R-A-E-M-E-M. -E -E listen to that. Yeah. Uh, also, it's by the time you listen to this, it's going to be almost November. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it will be the 28th, I think this goes up? Yes. I might be wrong. 26th? I can't remember. And you are, when this goes up, anyway, days away from the first episode of Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts, uh, in which Jeff and myself and nine other podcasts, sorry, eight other podcasts, because nine podcasts total, are kidnapped 
by the Beyonder. That's right, people. The Beyonder. Uh, and taken to Battle Pod. That's right, everyone. Fictional conceit. <laughs> the comics on each other's shows. Um, the 29th is the first episode. It's Fan Bros. And I'm on it. That's it, right. It's Rachel Edidin. It's Chris Sims. And it's DJ Benamin and Chico Leo from Fan Bros. And we are addressing who would win in a fight. Uh, the answer to who would win in a fight is it depends who you're talking about. We get through a remarkable number of mashups. Really? Wow. Uh, yeah, really. A, an impressive amount. And for those who like the fact that on Wait What we go somewhat off topic, that might happen in this one as well. <laughs> Just telling you ahead of time. Uh, although I'm sure that they're going to edit it into much more coherency. Than oh, wow. Engineers. Um, but yeah, we, we get through a bunch and the, that is, it's really fun. And that's the 29th that goes live. That's right. And then that continues all through November, uh, including an episode of Wait What featuring Jeff. That's right. Me talking with uh, Chico Leo, Paul O'Brien from House to Astonish, uh, the amazing Gary Lactus from Silence. Is that it? Is that, did I list four people? Uh, Chico, Leo, Paul O'Brien. Yeah, Gary Lactus and me. Four of us uh, talking about the worm turns, characters, books, and creators we used to love but now hate and or vice versa. With a lot of people apart from me being like, well, love's a little too strong a word, but check in. I'm It'll super be good. looking forward to this. I really am. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. That, that is happening all throughout November, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's shows like House to Astonish, uh, Into It with Hal Collins, uh, Rachel Less Mouse Than Live with Cater Die. Die. Uh, Warrock Ajax is in there. Uh, there's others that I, oh, Silence is obviously in there. Silence, Journey into Misery, and House to Astonish. Yeah, so it, it, there's a bunch of shows, a bunch of good shows that, yeah. that you'll be hearing. Um, we will be back, Jeff. Next week or the week after? I'm totally lost in our. Oh, I am too. Give me just one second. Uh, if you, by the way, people, if while, you... while I'm while I'm doing that, I should also say, like Jeff said, we're on Patreon, patreoncom podcast. That's right. Uh, and you can find more about how you can support us, or if you're supporting us, uh, find out about how you're doing it. If you are supporting us, thank you very much. Uh, yes. It is greatly appreciated. And without you, we wouldn't be doing things like Baxter Building. That's right. Baxter building, the weekly posts that we're doing, being able to make sure that the amazing Matt Turrell uh, gets a chance to, to review comics and be super, super duper smart. As it turns out, um, in part because the week that this goes up is the week of my birthday, which is to say next week, I have uh, uh, factored in another skip week for us. Also, just October just seemed a shockingly long month. So even though we had a skip Stick week for yourself, last week, <laughs> I mean, I just mean in terms of the number of days, like because of when we record, we, we had our choice of doing, as many people know, we do, uh, it's, there's usually like, you know, on average, four weeks in a month, we do two Baxter buildings. I mean, one Baxter building, two wait what's, and then uh, a week where Jeff tries to, you know, sort of suture his sanity back together. Uh, and uh, this time, since it more or less fell that there would be five recording dates uh, in October, um, Graham, of course, was going to go all out, and I, I begged and pleaded him. So there will be another skip week next week. 
which is it is what I'm saying. And we will return. Gosh, I think that really is. If that's the case, good grief, people! You you people will not have to listen to our scary voices until um, wait. What episode one eighty eight, which will be dropping on November 9th? Wow! Holy moly! And then there's uh then I think the week after that is our secret convergence episode. That's right. There's a Baxter building. Yes. Yeah. And so, that will take you through Thanksgiving, people. Wow. Wow. So, yes. Um, many things. I showed you what's happening for the next month. Which isn't is that amazing? You guys even know. It, 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 by the way, if you're interested in the stuff that Graham had talked about, you can find out full details at secretconvergence.tumblr.com or if you want to follow it on Twitter, it's uh, SCOI podcasts so uh, secret convergence on infinite podcasts scoi podcasts plural uh follow that follow them on twitter to find out because they're they're doing a great job i think of sort of promoting the various um podcast episodes too which i think uh, individually leading up to the event which i thought was quite cool of them maybe (laughs) (laughs) such silence uh so greg two weeks uh, yeah, uh, everyone have a wonderful uh, uh, Halloween. We look forward to, uh, to to sharing notes about what Graham dressed up for for the holiday um, when, when we speak together next. So. Spoilers, it's sexy Jeff Lester. <laughs> Damn it, I was dressing up as sexy Graham McMillan. Ah! <laughs> hey, everyone, 